0: Steve and Kevin review Magic Origins for Vintage on episode 45 of So Many Insane Plays. Well, Steve, it wouldn't be a set-review episode if we didn't have our report card. <laughs> and we know that it is a it is a bit late in coming, but we have retroactively gone back and recreated the three-month time period post-release for Dragons of Tarkir. And in the interest of time, we don't need to talk about most of the things. Because for the unfortunate likes of Stratus Dancer, Dramoka's Command, Narset, Sarkhan, Living Lord, Display of Dominance, Colagon's Command, Commune with Lava, Dragon Whisper, Drainable <laughs> Fact, and Hedonist's Trove... <laughs> The answer and the expectation were all right across the board, all zeros. We have three cards we need to mention, though, because the results actually came back with relevance for these three cards. Myth Realized, you and I talked at length about, pretty interesting conversation about where that card was positioned in the metagame. You said five appearances, which I thought was crazy, and I was right. There were zero. So that one goes down as a win for me.
1: Although I I believe I've seen it in in Magic Online daily. Mm. Vintage, I, I could be wrong, but I think it's appeared in a couple of the daily events.
0: I you. believe that. I I believe you. And thank you for reminding me of something that I should have said at the outset. As we've alluded to in prior set reviews and or report cards, Morphling.d is inconsistently updated these days.
1: Well, actually, we, they've just Morphling.d has explicitly come out and said they're no longer going to be updating.
0: Okay. So they no longer function for our purposes of counting results. We talked about it a little bit in our last one or two set reviews, and on the drain, we got some recommendations for sites to use. The apparent best one in terms of volume of results now is tcdex.net. tcdex.net has a search engine that's a little more sophisticated than Morphing.ds was, and it covers all formats, but they allow you to search specifically for cards and vintage And they appear to have the best, most numerous results amongst a couple of other competing sites. So we're using them for this results set here. If any of you out there have a a search engine site that does specific card results for tournaments that you think is more comprehensive than tcdex.net, reach out to us because we'd love to compare. In the interest of accuracy and full disclosure, we've changed our measuring site, but not our measuring method. We're still counting top eight appearances. So Myth Realized has zero. Next up is Rending Volley. There there was... We, you and I both predicted zero, although we talked about the possible uses of it. Well, there was one. There was one top eight appearance by Rending Volley in the three-month <laughs> period in question. And I think there have been more since then. The one appearance was at the side event, the Vintage Open side event at Grand Prix Kyoto, which is pretty cool. But as you said, it has started making more appearances, mostly in Dredge sideboards to fight Containment Priest and possibly Monastery Mentor.
1: Definitely. And is that appearing in just Dredge sideboards or more broadly?
0: No, actually, I've seen it mostly in Dredge and things like daily events and other smaller tournaments since then. But the one appearance in our three months was in a, a rogue deck. A, it looks like a red... Is this entirely red? Yeah. Seven Mountains plus Cavern of Souls. This is a red aggro control deck featuring Goblin Master, Magus of the Moon, Spirit Guide, main deck Sulphur Elemental, and Thundermaw Hellkite. The seriously rogue deck. Well, with four blood moons in the main. And then the sideboard is almost entirely dedicated to hating out. Yeah, Workshops, Dredge, and there's some Pyroblast and two Rending Volleys. So... An interesting rogue deck that came up with Rending Volleys. Mm. Actually, this deck has four Chalice of the Void in the main, too, so it looks like a kind of an answer deck that has eschewed the blue and just put in red creatures that are very hateful. Very interesting. At any rate, that was the one appearance of Rending Volley. We both predicted zero, but there was that one. Probably the most noteworthy one is Virulent Plague. You predicted two, I predicted one, the actual was four. This card has taken off, obviously a little bit more than we it's thought, but in about the right amount. Yeah. And the places we've normally seen it were in decks featuring Deathrite Shaman, you know, bug, landstill, or um, more aggro control bug builds. But it has applications in Grixis as well. And I think this card might actually continue to get a little better as if Mentor... Well, it, d- it depends on whether or not Mentor continues to be a thing in the metagame. Right. With the... Ch- would the- Results of the NYSE Open, we might see a bit of a drop in Mentor's representation, we'll see. But even so, Virulent Plague continues to be well-positioned against Oath and Dredge, and uh, just broadly useful against uh, the young Pyromancer decks as well.
1: Yeah, I would encourage our listeners to go back to our last episode and find the segment on it, whatever it was, because I think it's worth listening we don't need to rehash that here. But the card is is definitely Vintage playable, it's proven it.
0: Absolutely so you and i have a bit of a split decision on dragons of tarkir we each won one over the other but the rest of them were not really worth mentioning (laughs) let's move on to magic origins
1: very excited
0: We like to talk about new mechanics for sets as we review them, and but this being a core set, the last core set, ostensibly, there's only really one vintage relevant mechanic, even though there are a couple of new ones. There's Renown, which is on a number of cards, and which takes the form of Renown X. When this creature deals combat damage to a player, if it isn't Renowned, put a plus one, plus one counter on it, and it becomes Renowned. Uh sorry, a plus one plus one counter on it for whatever the renowned value is. Most of them are one, but I think there are some others. Now, dealing combat damage to a player is well, it's not a very vintagey mechanic, so to speak. It doesn't speak to the uh, any of the fundamental nature of vintage, the way something like say flashback does or something like evoke really was critical to the format. But dealing damage with creatures is still very common these days. Lots of creatures in Vintage these days. So Renown is still a very relevant mechanic. And they take the form of triggered abilities mostly. When when the creature becomes renowned, they have some kind of benefit. We'll talk about one example here pretty soon. I think a far more Vintage-y mechanic, though, one that has me personally kind of excited to see how much of it manifests is Spell Mastery, now, Spell Mastery, which, I mean, Vintage is the format where you master spells, right? It's a ability word that says if there are two or more instant and or sorcery cards in your graveyard, then dot, 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 the spell generally has some additional effect. Now, it just so happens that Spell Mastery is the sort of thing that Vintage is already doing very heavily and commonly these days, thanks to cantrip-based decks like Delver. So I think if there's a format where Spell Mastery can be maximized, Vintage is probably it. I'm sure it will be highly relevant in legacy as well.
1: It's interesting. I mean, so the closest the closest uh, analog that conceptually that comes to mind is is um, is the Moxopal example, which is uh, what's that called? Metalcraft. Metalcraft, right? I mean, so Affinity yeah. counts artifacts in play, um, yep. but Metalcraft specifically has a threshold, right? So it's not just in other words, Affinity scales infinite; it goes from yep. you know zero to whatever whereas Metalcraft has this threshold. So that actually is reminiscent of this, in that it looks at a card type in play, it's yeah. looking at a card type in the graveyard in a certain number. So it, it's definitely reminiscent of that, right? In the sense that you could have a card that has an effect, and if you have Metalcraft, you get a bonus. Um,
0: Such that this ability could have been called Spellcraft.
1: Yeah. <laughs> 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 right, right. But I, I like, I like the notion here that, um, you know, this is def- this is this mechanic is. I, I think it's worth pointing out more emphatically that it definitely benefits these these type of you know preordained type decks, right? These decks which really quickly get instants and sorceries into the graveyard. Um, but it also I think opens up more space for mechanics of this kind. You know, so you could imagine a metal craft for the graveyard or a land craft for the graveyard, right? Absolutely. What do you yeah, think? I think go, ahead. go ahead. I was just going to say that one of the things that hold, held back Metalcraft is that the number, you know, it's, it's clear that Moxo Bull is vintage playable, is legacy playable, but um, you know, what if Metalcraft had been two instead of three, right? I mean, what, what do you right. think of the number here?
0: I think the number is very tilted toward. Um, I mean, it is. It's a threshold that's obviously exceedingly easy to achieve yeah, in a tournament. Exactly. Exactly. It's so the threshold appears to be have been heavily influenced by standard and or limited play. Okay. Um, yeah. I just the threshold of two is borderline trivial in eternal formats.
1: (laughs) That's what I'm getting at. Yeah. You know, it's, it's weird. I mean, maybe, you know, because Mox Opal, if it had been two, it'd be so much better, so much easier to play. Yeah,
0: Uh. absolutely. The fact that they chose three, even in a format like vintage, where you have entire uh, artifact-based decks, the simple fact that they chose three meant that you can't just put put Mox Opal into a workshop deck and and expect it to reliably work. But
1: it is interesting to point out that Mox Opal counts itself, whereas these do not. These spells do not count themselves.
0: Uh, That's that's worth noting, yep.
1: So that's the difference between being in play. And in, in, in many respects, then, it is a perfect analog in that way to Metalcraft.
0: Yes, they both require two prior... Yeah, artifacts. But metalcraft doesn't only exist on artifacts, though.
1: That's right. There's cards like electric, not right. electric, but
0: uh. Well, there's there's plenty of cards, creatures and such that yeah, aren't there's artifacts. There's a that, spell yeah, if you have metalcraft, right galvanic blast, yeah, exactly. For which the threshold is always the same. So yes, yeah, so your observation about them being identical applies only on metalcraft on an artifact. That's true. Yeah. Those are the only really brand new things that have been created for this set. There's plenty of recurring. Uh, keywords and abilities scry prowess are some prowess is especially interesting and recent addition also of course the dual faced cards the the headline cards for this set are the cycle of five planeswalkers because the set ostensibly the title refers to the stories of these five planeswalkers and how they got their spark and they're represented by legendary creatures that represent these planeswalkers in their youth, that once their spark condition occurs, and we'll talk about a few here, then they flip over and become their planeswalker forms. Now, that's not inherently a Vintage-y um, concept, right? Their flip conditions are what really determines what formats they, uh, they play to, but I would say that the simple fact that their flip conditions don't involve mana, broadly speaking, and that the planeswalker forms are immediately effective means that they you have to consider them, because of their efficiency and speed and tempo, you, you really have to consider them for Eternal Formats, broadly speaking.
1: <laughs> what what do you make of them bringing back the flip, the flip cards?
0: I think it was something of an obvious thing. I think that if they had thought of it and maybe had the guts to do it before, they would have done it in Kamigawa when we first got this kind of small or you know youthful young creature becoming old legendary creature kind of thing especially planeswalkers yeah yeah planeswalkers it makes even more sense i think but i i just feel like that once they had their the precedent for this kind of thing and it was successful in innistrad block that it is a no brainer at this point <laughs> yeah. it's it's very flavorful and mechanical i think it's a win-win all the way around it's great at telling a story it's just good
1: yeah the art is amazing on the lily idol um oh yeah Broadly speaking, Magic Origins is replacing the standard core set that would normally be the summer, right? So this this would have been, what, M14 or something, M15? Sorry, no, M16, Yes, M60, it, it is just right? a
0: relabeled core set. Right, it is just a relabeled core set.
1: So what does that mean for that, that general approach to the core set in the summer? Does that mean that we, we shouldn't expect an M17
0: next year? No, this is ostensibly the last core set, and the new change in the new modified schedule for block release and the standard rotation goes into effect after this. It's actually in effect already, but it's this is the the pivot point. And so the, there will be more blocks, no core sets, and the rotation will have its its uh, slightly faster pace.
1: I I wonder what that means for the future of the game because I mean the core set has often been the place where they've they've kind of done a done a realignment or a revision to many of the the most important features of the game. It isn't to say that a lot of the major rule changes haven't actually happened in expansion sets. They have. Mm-hmm. But but what they call you know sixth edition rules or whatever have often taken you know have often been associated with the core set. You know even though fifth edition rules I think came in with visions, it was still the introduction of fifth edition rules, right? Yeah. M10 strikes me. Well, M10 stands out in my memory as this sort of re-envisioning of what magic is. This re- rebuilding the house, right? Yeah. And and yeah. you do that in a core set, because you're not expected to have all the complexity that's found in the expansion sets. So I'm just wondering, what does that mean for the future of the game? How do you recenter yourself? Or, you know, if you're constantly working with novel tools, you know, which expansion sets are generally designed to do.
0: Um, I would say that I would say that there's been more change along those lines in expansions as well recently and that there's, they're really not shying away from doing that. I think they it d- did feel like the core sets were an anchor yeah, that's what and thinking. a logical place to do those kind of things, yeah. but I genuinely don't think there's anything to stop them from doing them in major expansions. And they, they've done things like that. The, the, I'm trying to remember... It was the change in the sequencing for booster pack drafting. that I think that occurred several years ago now. I'm trying to remember which set it was. It was... Oh, I know. It was with Scars block. Scars of Mirrodin is when they changed this order of what packs you open for a booster draft when you're drafting a block. That's the kind of thing I think that falls under the into the realm of what you're talking about. That I think they're comfortable making those kind of changes in non-core sets these days. Who knows? Maybe we'll see some kind of still annual schedule where we tend to make this kind of change at this time of year, whatever the summer expansion is. Yeah they might still do that. But look at the mulligan rules we just discussed. Oh, I mean, maybe is this the last time they're going to do something aligned with the summer like this. Who knows?
1: Well, I mean, Innistrad was definitely a top-down set, and that brought in the first flip cards, right? Right. You know, but but M10, it was something totally of a different scale. You get a sure. 10-down design. It was so different. It was it was almost like a reinvigoration because you have space to to retool and revamp. You know, it was like a reboot in a a little bit of a way. Um, And it brought the thinking that a reboot brings is very different than the thinking that you get when you're constantly trying to press forward, right? Sure. And, And that's what I'm getting at. So it's not to say that you can't do that, but the space for that becomes maybe narrower in some way.
0: Yeah, but I still feel like you're grouping certain kinds of changes because they're conceptually fit in that space, yeah. because we've had this, this punctuation on a, on a recurring basis. Definitely. But they've de- clearly demonstrated that they're willing to make those those type of changes wherever they want.
1: Yeah, but, but, but the structures often um, help shape and determine the outcome. And and we've talked about this in previous podcasts, the design approaches, you know, whatever. But I'm just, I'm just observing that the kinds of approaches that we saw on M10, the kind of, you know, let's go back to the basics. Let's look simply and fresh with fresh eyes what's going on in magic what do we want at its most basic yeah. level most basic building blocks that's a very different set of questions that you get when you're designing a new expansion set where the question is often at least it seems to me how do we push forward with a very specific set of themes new mechanics and how do we make those as interesting and fun as possible where you're, you know it's the difference between you know rebuilding your home and moving cross-country and building a new home
0: right <laughs> <laughs> well i i I acknowledge that they're different, but I would also think you might be overstating a bit how much that core set change in in mentality extends beyond the core set. It's not as though Return to Ravnica and Khan's block look dramatically different because of what happened in M10. There's there's influence. Don't get me wrong, but yeah. M10 as a set still looks. I mean, it's a core set. It has certain things. Yeah. It has a, a certain so, simplicity so to it. Will,
1: standard going forward won't have a core set. It won't have an anchor like that. Right? It'll just right. Be
0: blocks. Right. But even if you look at this Magic Origins set, yeah, this doesn't look like a core set did. I mean, this doesn't look like M10.
1: Like pre-ordering, pre-ordering came about because of M10. It came out of M10, right? Or M11 came out of yeah of it Came out of the, out of someone asking the question, "How do I make a simple version of this card?" Right? Or "How do I make yeah. it?" Right? And a lot of those cards, those cards that became playable, came out by asking that kind of question. Now, it doesn't say you can't. Isn't it to say you can't make cards like that out of expansion yeah. sets. But I just <laughs> think they're more likely to come out of.
0: Yeah, it's true. I mean, those kind of vanilla sort of effects, the the lightning bolt and shocks of the world, have come out in that kind of arena heavily. Yeah. But my point is they've they've demonstrated two things. They've demonstrated that they're willing to put those kind of vanilla effects into other sets also. Yeah. And also this core set notion has gotten more and more complex over the years, such that it just looks like an, an expansion without a story anymore. And now that the core set, at least this Origins ones, has a big story, that this Magic Origins, you could make a case that its core sets ended last year. <laughs> <laughs> and that this is just, a, it's more like a core story expansion, Weird. right? Because it's it's talking about cross-plane characters, and it's heavily story-driven. It's very top-down. The, dual, the, you know, the dual-face cards that become Planeswalkers, it's all top-down. It's the most top-down core set ever. So this one is really stretching the definition of core Yeah, set. I guess
1: M10 was not really top down. I, I don't remember what it's called or what you call it, but M10 was designed from a mechanical perspective, right? Not a yes.
0: A yeah. There's never there's never been a top down core set yeah. to likes of what we're getting with Origins.
1: Yeah, and I, I just I guess I'm just suggesting I, I'm I'm not sure what the consequences of that are, and I'm yeah. I'm wondering if there are and, and if, if they need to somehow make space for something else, you know, to, to fill some of those those needs.
0: I think it's a transition that's been going on for quite a while. This is not... This is not a major slamming on the brakes of anything. Yeah. The the things you're observing have been gradually changing for a while.
1: Well, what about the what about the entry pro- level product? You know, what does that mean for people who are new to Magic? This is not of interest to most of our listeners, but could get <laughs> concerned to them, right? I mean, the ratcheting well, up of the complexity of the game is a clear problem.
0: And there is there is an entry level product for every set now. There's no distinction between core set and expansion. And as I was saying, this expansion, this core set is already far more complex. So what is the intro
1: product? They have some sort of like starter packet? They have
0: intro. Yeah. Every set that comes out has intro packs. That have a a predefined list of cards okay. plus some boosters. All right, I'm
1: just I will press the point, but I just want to put yeah. it out there for people to consider.
0: I think you're right in that it represents a sea change, but it is not a dramatic shift right now. It's a it's a change that's been going on for quite some time. And if if someone told you that there were no more core sets. Sorry, if someone didn't tell you that this was a core set, you might mistake this for another kind of expansion. I guess that's what I'm getting at, is this is already past that threshold of being like an expansion. We're already living in the world of post-core development, basically, because there's no way that you would look at Liliana Heretical Healer and call that a, that's that's not a base card kind of card. (laughs) That's not a core set kind of simple card. That's not for new players. Now, of course, it is for new players from a story standpoint, but that's already on the other side of the line. Mm. I think this is just a continuation of something they've been working toward for a while.
1: Oh, I, I completely agree with that. Yeah. I just wonder what the consequences are. Just we'll see. This approach. Yeah, we'll see.
0: <laughs> you and I will we'll meet them out. So let's talk about some individual cards. Let's start with Hallowed Moonlight. Instant. One white until end of turn. If a creature would enter the battlefield and it wasn't cast, exile it instead. Draw a card.
1: Well, cantrips are always good, and the casting cost here is playable. And white is increasingly so. <laughs> yeah, that, that was my next point. White is increasingly playable. It's it, again, we made this point before how single cards can can make other cards a lot more. You know, there doesn't appear to be a connection between, say, I don't know, swords to plowshares and monastery mentor, a direct connection. And yet, right the, the printing of Monastery Mentor has made Swords of Plasters a lot more playable. Simply, yep. you know, uh, just because Monastery Mentor is so good and incentivizes people playing white, you know, um, and then also swords is a good way to remove it. Um, but uh, yeah, anyway, so there it is. Uh, you know, this is a, a, a increasingly playable color and a playable cost and, and it replaces itself, which is always nice. The most obvious point of comparison here is containment priest, but there is one word that's critically different.
0: Yeah, or there's one word that's critically missing from this card. Okay. Yep. And that word is non-token. <laughs> exactly. So do note everyone that this stops tokens from entering play as well. Which is um, tokens are just omnipresent in vintage these days it's between young pyromancer, right. monastery mentor, uh Bridge from Below. Bridge from Below and uh, Forbidden Orchard. Forbid, forbidden Orchard, yes. It's and as well as a few other corner cases like Worm Coil Engine, precursor golem. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um there's no doubt about it. Um
0: So this hoses Dredge even more than containment priest does. <laughs> which is well- which is magical. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, for a turn. At least. For,
0: for, a turn. It, right, for a, for a one turn, it hoses dredge even worse than containment priest does.
1: Um, just a quick question for some corner cases. So if someone casts uh, Precursor Golem with the CIP ability on the stack. You play this in response. The tokens do not come into play, correct? Exactly. Your opponent taps a Forbidden Orchard. You play this. You can't actually respond. But you respond to the token trigger. The token will not come into play, correct?
0: So what you said is correct. If you if your opponent taps a Forbidden Orchard trying to give you a, a token, you can respond to the trigger on the Orchard by playing this spell, and you won't receive the token.
1: Okay, so what also about things like Wormcoil Coil Engine? My opponent sacrifices Wormcoil Coil Engine to put up the Forge Master, and you play this in response, tokens don't token come into play.
0: That's right, and also it would affect the Forge Master's ability resolution too, just as Containment Priest does. Right. If they chose to try and put a creature in play, it would be exiled.
1: Excellent. It's interesting to also compare, and this is very minor, but the difference between exiling and not coming into play. So Digger's Cage and the Exile mm-hmm. have subtly different advantages and disadvantages. I mean, clearly the advantage of the not coming into play is that you still get the card, but sometimes you don't want the card there. So.
0: <laughs> right. In the case of things that pull it out of the library, like Tinker or Forgemaster, Graftigger's Cage leaves the card in the library, wherever it was. In the case of both of those cards, a shuffle is immediately involved, so it doesn't matter where it was. But in the case of Oath of Druids, it definitely matters where it was because it was on top of your library.
1: <laughs> right, right, right. But, but it's nice to have more of these effects in the format. I mean, there's no doubt that the, that that the format is increasingly turned to those kinds of effects, whether it's Show and Tell or Tinker or Oath of Druids. And the proliferation mm-hmm. of these kinds of effects is, is more than welcome.
0: Yeah, agreed completely. We'd be having a dramatically different conversation about this card if Containment Priest didn't exist, Yeah, <laughs> of course, for, for two reasons, too. is because this is a really powerful and potent effect, and it's broadly applicable in what it impacts. It impacts Martello Shops, it impacts Delver-style decks via Young Pyromancer or Mentor, yeah. it impacts um, Oath decks, of course, it impacts Dredge, of course. I mean, it's just almost every archetype in Vintage these days has something that creates... Creatures, either pulling them from the library or the graveyard or from thin air, and this stops all of that. And it's an instant. I mean, yeah. like two or three years ago, we we would have been very excited about this card. The fact that containment priest exists and containment priest is also an instant and it sits in play yeah. is I think that's the big that's the big thing. The yes. permanency of containment priest definitely trumps the the to, the anti-token strategy of this card and
1: the in the card advantage the the, the, the replacement effect. It's uh, from in other words, the cantrip part. I I agree with you. I think that the the, the fundamental problem is that the the kinds of decks that generate tokens do so over multiple turns. Dredge generates tokens on one turn, your turn, their next turn... You know, and so on, and they're able to yeah. do that recursively. Uh, certainly, that's the case with Pyromancer and Mentor. It's not that if there was a, a an effect that was prevalent that you could stop in one turn. You know, then you would be talking about something. But at best, you're talking about stopping a show and tell or one yeah. oath activation. But you can't stop all of them. That's, yep. the, that's where this card fails.
0: And in addition to everything you just said, which I completely agree with. Drawing a card, which everybody loves cantrips. That's the first thing you said. Cantrips are great. Drawing a card is not... It pales in comparison to the value of the permanency of Containment Priest. Uh (laughs) The card you could draw... The only thing, if, if you need this effect, the only thing you want that card to be is another copy of this card. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which, within reason, isn't really possible or right. feasible. And so that's why the permanency of Containment Priest is so much more important, is because when you need that effect, you need it every turn, as you said, over and over again. You need it to be consistently there. Now, okay, so what are some scenarios where you might conceivably want this card over the, Containment Priest? The
1: people are Like I said, when, people, when the format is focused around a show-and-tell deck, or a Eureka deck, something like that, but there you go. Where, where you have a strategy that is built upon one big turn.
0: Yep. Or or just one shot effects like Tinker. If yeah. it's just Tinker or Show and Tell, yeah. So also if there's a deck that or sorry if the if the metagame shifts such that token generation is so prevalent that you really need to fight the tokens also. Yeah, then this just conceivably has application there. That's true. The thing about Dredge, though, Dredge is the preeminent token deck, of course, but Containment Priest doesn't need to stop the tokens if it stops all the other creatures from coming into play. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> they can still evoke an Ingot Chewer and get some tokens that exactly, way. But, exactly right. Yep. But that's, they won't win the game that way, generally. Yeah, the
1: token generation in Dredge is completely dependent upon the creatures that precede it.
0: Right. Precisely. Okay, so then let's predict. Do you think any copies of Hallowed Moonlight? I'm across, I'm zeros. Yeah. It's it's almost like this is a playable card, but it would be a downgrade from Containment Priest, so I'm not, convinced no, it's play- I'm not
1: convinced it's playable, but I think it's definitely in the right
0: direction. Yeah. Good point. Well, there also the other thing is this card would be far more relevant if you're about to win the game. If you only need to stop them for one turn, and the only deck that can even Reliably do that that contains white mana really is Bomberman. Yeah. But that is not a combo deck. That's not a speed kills deck. You still play grindy games with Bomberman more often than not. If there was a white combo deck that just needed that time walk effect against dredge or other decks, this might be preferred over Containment Priest. But that seems highly unlikely. And it doesn't exist today. That's right. Next up, Relic Seeker. One white creature, human soldier. Renown 1 When Relic Seeker becomes Renown You may search your library for an equipment card Reveal it, put it into your hand and Then shuffle your library It is 2-2 Yet another in a long line of grizzly bears <laughs> Hate bears with, This is not a hateful one, it just has upside Yeah as we've just discussed, the mana cost is clearly it's clearly playable. The mana cost in body is the same as Containment Priest, San's Flash. In fact, this creature is actually bigger than its numbers would belie because of the renown ability. Would make it three three. And the obvious comparison, right. of course, is to Stoneforge Mystic. This is a uh,
1: Stoneforge Mystic is part of our super creature cycle.
0: <laughs> That's right.
1: Of Bob, which is no longer quite so super. Young, <laughs> Young Pyromancer, Stoneforge Mystic, uh, Tarmogoyf, and Snapcaster Mage.
0: Yep. Now, this is a slightly slower, so to speak, stone forge in that you don't get the creature the turn you play it. Ostensibly, you get it the next turn. The, ah, the sorry, the uh, equipment, thank you. What you also lose out on, of course, is the ability to, in an uncounterable, activated way, put that in equipment right. into play, which is huge. Right. That's one of the primary reasons why Stoneforge sees any play right. in Vintage, is because the uncounterability of that means that the only real option you have to interact with the Stoneforge is with Force of Will on turn two, usually, because almost no other counterspells other than occasional mana drains interact with it that fast.
1: Yeah, so let me just let me just make that point explicit. Now, their Flusterstorm, yeah. Pyroblast, Spell Pierce, you name it, they don't counter Stoneforge and Mystic. And, uh,. You know, So that leaves you with Force of Will and, and, frankly, no Force of Will if they have Cavern. You have to mm-hmm. bolt, bolt it uh, in order to prevent it, the, the equipment from coming into play. So uh, Stoneforge, is, Stoneforge evades most counter magic, and then allows you to resolve the you know, put the equipment into
0: play. Also of note is this Renown ability results in a stronger creature, a 3-3 three, three, as opposed to a 1-2 in Stoneforge, but it, the trigger relies upon damaging a player. And this Relic Seeker has no evasion. So in a world full of all of Workshop's creatures and or Delver's creatures, especially their token generation, it can be difficult to make contact with a player these days in Vintage when you really need to without evasion. So there will be plenty of contexts when you could play this just as fast as you would a Stoneforge and never be able to get its trigger, thanks to a young Pyromancer or any number of things that also deal with Stoneforge Mystic while it's in play.
1: It should be noted, though, that this card has at least one other major advantage over Stoneforge Mystic, and that is the fact that this is a human.
0: Yep. Yeah, if there's one thing that Stoneforge really does wrong these days, it's being a core artificer. <laughs> <laughs> Those human decks would love to be able to play Stoneforge with their cavern on humans. As it stands, Stoneforge is still good enough to play, but that is a big drawback, unfortunately. Right. right. I don't believe that the humanness of this creature, thus making it uncounterable, really helps it, because its real drawback is how the trigger ability is, can be stymied by your opponent Blaine. in a way that Stoneforges just can't. Plain. I just mean, you have to play this and wait a turn and swing in and hit them to get the effect of what Stoneforge Mystic does when it comes into play. Your opponent has many more opportunities to interact with yes. it, and the so, fact that it's uncounterable right. doesn't help you a, a, arrive at your real goal, which is getting the trigger to happen. I right. mean, yes, so, it's 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 nice, and you'll take it, but the simple fact is is that once it's in play, you still have to go through multiple hoops to get your trigger.
1: Yes, so the most fundamental dis- distinction between the two is that it's is, is not even the fact that the effect has encounterability. It's really the fact that uh, the equipment goes into your hand immediately when Stoneforge Mystic comes into play as opposed yep. to here, you have to wait until you attack and deal damage to your opponent. So it yep. could be, your opponent could effectively thwart you from getting that ever, which is with, with Pyromancer token generation. Uh, and I completely agree with you. I think if this card just, you know, said search your library for an artifact, put it into your you know, equipment, put it your hand, uh, we'd, have a, we'd have a much more interesting discussion. Because at that point, we would have to weigh the value of the encounter ability versus the size of the creature. And more importantly, um, you know the array of artif- of equipment that you would get. Stoneforge Mystic has a huge incentive to get batterskull, which is generally you know not, not only does it is it encounterable but it's a big mana cheat, you know, five yeah. mana to two mana. Whereas I think this this creature would incentivize all kinds of much more efficient artifacts, more like Umazawa Jitte.
0: Yeah, you're completely right. I didn't even consider that. Even if you could make this work, you can't do the same things. You can't cheat the same artifacts into play, so right. you're not getting value out of searching out a matter skull with this, like you are with Stone Forge.
1: Right. So you get different sets of things, but but yeah. as it stands, we, we don't we aren't having that discussion. So yep. Uh, unfortunately, this is I don't think this has been playable. No,
0: nope. I'll go with zeros. I assume you do as well.
1: Right. But the human thing is 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 again. I mean, all, cumulatively, if if this had functioned more like Stoneforge, and you have the increased value, you know, of the of the overall body and the and the humanness. I think you'd have a you'd have a serious contender.
0: Yeah, you know, we always go to Cavern of Souls as the default reason to care about being human, but also it's relevant with Mayor of Everbrook. <laughs> uh, and Mayor is not very popular these days, but it does come up every now and then when you build yourself an effective human deck, having a lord for two mana that's uh, frequently uncounterable. That's relevant. And so it still might not help you get through those elemental or monk tokens reliably without evasion. But the fact that this becomes three-three with Mayor of Averbook just at its base—that's a relevant clock. Definitely, it could add up, as you said. All right, next is a fun one: Viren Wingmare, two white creature, Pegasus, flying, non-creature spells cost one more to cast. And it's two one. This is a mana cost that shared with Monastery Mentor and Avon Mind Sensor, and is clearly playable in Vintage these days. And the two one flying body is so it's basically has almost all the same stats as Aven Mind Sensor. It also seems it also has all the same stats as one Glow Rider, <laughs> which is two white two one human cleric non-creature spells cost one more to cast. What you're trading here is that a glow rider is a human cleric, and this wingmare is a pegasus. So this is kind of the opposite conversation as Relic Seeker. Would you trade... No. Oh, so let me back up. Glowrider has been played in Vintage, just not lately. In the whole history of the format, you would call it Vintage playable, but it's not recently, especially because of Thalia. Yes. Now this is a good effect. Non creature spells meaning you build a creature based deck and you're punished less than your opponent is in theory. Flying is a nice ability, but would you take would you take the humanness away from a glow rider just so it flew? I think the answer is pretty clearly no.
1: Or or would you take take away the, fir- the first strike is in many ways more valuable than flying.
0: Oh yeah, by all means. Thalia's first strike is way good.
1: I mean the main problem with Thalia is that it's a legend. But that has not dissuaded people from playing it in, in mass quantities, so to
0: speak, right? Sure. Um, Three or four copies, yes. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Or in being a human, I don't see this as being a competitor to Glow Rider per se, because this is just strictly superior to Glow Rider, basically. I I see this being competitive with Valia, and I don't see it being a competition.
0: Well, I I don't even agree on the second point, though. I think the fact that you take the humanness away from this means it's not strictly superior to Glowrider. Once they're in play, sure. Right. But But,
1: it's a little bit like saying, you know, uh, which fourth place... You know, horse would you rather have, right? Like, yeah. you know, so unfortunately it's not really a, a meaningful
0: question. I think the importance of the creature type, the humanness specifically, yeah. it has it follows kind of a bell curve in terms of mana cost.
1: I'm sorry, I, I, I my first point I was confused, I actually thought, I didn't realize Glowrider was a human, I thought it was just a cleric. Um, no, it is. Yeah. No, it, yeah, I mean, to be honest it probably, the, Glow Rider probably is better, just because of the humanness. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs>
0: (laughs) The humanness vis-a-vis Cavern of Souls takes on a different meaning depending on, on mana cost.
1: Yeah, it's not just mana cost. It's, well, it certainly is. Because And I see what you're saying. You're saying both because the, the, the more expensive a card is, the more important it is to use Cavern to resolve it, to make it uncountable.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yes.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Um, like,
0: Athalia this, is going to sneak in under certain effects just by virtue of being castable on turns one or two. Right, right, right. This doesn't have that benefit. No. Your opponent's more likely to have a mana drain online to a deal with this than they are Athalia. And also... Well, I guess one-mana humans are also critically important uh, because they get through Chalice of the Void, but there aren't very many one-mana humans that see play. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're really bunched at two-mana. Yeah, I don't think we need well, to
1: linger any further on this. Uh, I just yeah. Thalia crowds out the, the space for a card like this.
0: Yeah, agreed. Speaking of crowded space, Artificer's Epiphany, two blue instant. Draw two cards. If you control no artifacts, discard a card. This is a fun one to analyze. Now, the mana cost at 2 blue is shared by dozens of cards. It's clearly playable, and an instant, of course. And it competes directly with a famous card of ours, Thirst for Knowledge, both in mana cost and spell type and in theme. I really think this card is interesting in that it doesn't serve the same role, but the draw 2 cards is immediately uh, evocative of Gush which is heavily played these days. Three mana and needing an artifact in play, though, pushes you toward a dramatically different type of deck. We're talking the realm of a bigger mana blue deck that's featuring the full set of Mox and possibly Sol Ring and Mana Crypt, of course, in order to maximize this, just like the old Thirst decks do, or did.
1: I think you're getting a little ahead of us here. Let's just focus. I think there's a lot of cards that, are, that we, can, we can provide as references. Uh, you know, so... So first of all, you know, while thirst for knowledge is one of the most powerful blue draw spells of all time and is restricted in the format, it clearly is evocative of that. But beyond that, there are a number of cards that that we can we can point as is uh, points of comparison. So uh, first and foremost, there are a number of cards that say basically like draw. T- what's the what's the name of the spell that says draw three cards, discard two unless one's a land? This is a sorcery? Compulsive research. Yeah, compulsive research. Of course, you also have ThoughtCast, which draws two cards um, Mm -hmm. with Affinity. Um, Compulsive Research is interesting, though. Uh, And um, I think there's another Compulsive Research-type variant. I can't think of what it is on the top of my head. But um, I remember one time a couple years ago, maybe longer, Owen Turtenwald played in some local event, vintage event, with, I think, four Compulsive Research. (laughs) Nice. And, um, you know, what's important to remember about... um, Thirst, I think, is that Thirst was actually more than just saying, you know, first of all, it said draw three cards, uh, but it, it really didn't, it netted you three cards, uh, it netted you two cards, because the card that went to the graveyard was often the card you wanted to be in the graveyard, mm-hmm. to Thirst, to, to uh, weld back, uh, and so that was a huge benefit, and part of the reason that Thirst was so powerful, or you wanted just to put it there to eventually yog well back, like part of the key vault combo or something like that. Um, yep. in this case, you know, you, you look at a card like compulsive research, compulsive research in a deck that has a high land count could be consistently generating, you know, uh, it could be consistently netting you a, a card, right? I mean, two cards, because you could be discarding, um, I guess you'd be netting one card, but you could be discarding a land consistently. Um, the, the conditionality here is much different than the kinds of effects we've seen. Like compulsive research is obviously much more applicable or much more comparable to thirst except it being sorcery. Um, but the conditionality here is controlling, not the kind of card you discard, right? Absolutely. And and obviously this draws you fewer cards. So um, I, I'm just wondering how you think it should, stacks up against all those, those types of cards.
0: Well, I, obviously Thirst is restricted. Yeah. And more to the point, one of the things that made Thirst so potent was how it interacted with deck construction and the, the pr- prevalent features of the format that already existed when it was printed, right? This welder, mindslaver archetype, I'm sorry, artifact-based archetypes were already in place when Thirst came into being, and so it was entering an environment that was already primed for it. This card doesn't have that kind of advantage. The big mana blue decks with heavy artifacts are not they're not they're not the standard. The standard right now is light mana blue decks, gush decks, and the bigger mana decks are either not heavy artifact decks like landstills, or they're not they don't play the same kind of game. I guess the closest thing these days would be your bomber man's, which have the full mox contingent and want to play a grindy game. I think today you, the place you really need to compare this in the modern metagame is, is to Trinket Mage. Huh. It has a totally different effect, granted, but that's the slot, I think, in the deck, in a deck, that this would go. A three-mana slot that you want to play to fill out your curve. Of course, that doesn't work for Bomberman, <laughs> and it doesn't work for the, the toolbox approach. The decks with one cage and one explosives or one nile bomb doesn't work for those decks but look more maybe at the role of Trinket Mage in The Answer, the Blue-Red Blood Moon control decks, and those decks might prefer to have just a card advantage engine than to search up an Engineered Explosives or a Chalice. I don't think the format is ripe for this card right now by any stretch, but you could see an an increase in things like Tezzeret 1 or 2, perhaps in conjunction with the Chalice of the Void kind of metagame positioning in a control deck with Mana Drain, Maybe the answer morphs into a deck that wants this a little bit more. I'm not sure what to make of that. But it's pretty clear that you have to be maxed out on probably 7 to 10 artifacts I say maxed out. That's the kind of maximum that control decks will play these days in terms of accelerants plus a few role players. But as you and I have recently observed, uh, Key Vault is at its lowest point in yep. recent vintage history right now.
1: I don't want to be the person who underestimates this card because this type of effect has always historically been underestimated and then quite good, right? I mean, right. You know, uh, Knight's Whisper is in the format. Um, isn't there another card that's like Knight's Whisper that we reviewed some time back? couple years ago it's uh one more mana
0: and yeah read the bones
1: read the bones and that has scry four on it i think is that-
0: no it's scry two draw two scry two draw two that's right yeah,
1: yeah. um so i think the biggest difference in the most central difference between this and every other card we talked about is really the fact this is an instant and i think that's part of what drives their power to no yes. small, to no small extent um com- between compulsive research to um you know i think uh People, tr- you know, certainly thought cast, but people tried careful consideration for some for some time. You know, Gosh is an instant, but it's really a card you have to play on your own turn most of the time. Right. You know, this card being an instant gives it a whole different set of dynamics that um, I think functionally this is going to be most of the time in a big blue deck. This is just going to be draw two cards for three mana. And I don't know what to do with yes. that. And if that's the case, how does that stack up to Thirst for Knowledge? That's the question.
0: Well, and my instincts tell me that the way I've been talking about building for this card means you're going to have Thirst in that deck also. I mean, if you're playing an answer-style deck that has three or four Chalices and... Full set of Moxen and maybe another couple of role players like your engineered explosives. Then first is a natural fit in that deck. Yeah. You could even ramp it up a little bit. You might you might add Key Vault to such a deck. Yeah. Or take a different approach with Tezzeret. I mean, it's, this enorm- It's yeah. This would
1: be enormously exciting, right? When you go land Mox Mox this this card, right? And
0: that's a- oh yeah. It makes it makes Mana Crypt and Soul Ring have far more potency in the metagame than they yeah. currently really do in blue decks. Those those two particular accelerants are way down in their utility right now in vintage. Right.
1: I guess I'm I'm struggling to try and frame the question that will allow us to see this card more, most clearly. But but I mean, Knight's Whisper is clearly a card that has seen a lot of play in the past. Never an overwhelming amount of play. Usually just you know whatever a marginal amount. Of, but it's seen consistent play, persistent play, not necessarily consistent. Yeah. It's certainly not continuous play, but it's seen street and notable instances of play. But it's seemed to just you know fade away. Almost as soon as it shows up, it, it, with the exception of that Knight's Whisper Control Slaver that was popular, was it last summer, the beginning of last summer. Right. Um, you know, the, I'm just wondering: does this does this revive a Control Slaver deck? Does this card is this the is this the thing you've been looking for? You know, and and, and in a way, you know, is this is this better than Knight's Whisper?
0: I, I think the short answer is no, because I don't think Control Slaver is a workable archetype right now. But I think that deck basically exists now in the form of yeah. the existing Mana Drain decks. Yeah. The, the Answer, the Consecrated Sphinx decks, those are the current successors to that archetype. You can't actually play Control Slaver today.
1: But if Thirst for Knowledge were unrestricted, you could.
0: I, I don't necessarily agree, I, but that that statement has, is very loaded. Yeah. <laughs> if Thirst for Knowledge were unrestricted, dot, 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 means yeah. a lot of things. Exactly. <laughs> but what I'm getting at is since Thirst isn't unrestricted, and since one of the best weapons against the Gush decks that Blue has right now is actually Chalice of the Void, and since most decks are geared up to kill a 1-1 blue creature on turn 1, or a 2-1 red creature on turn 2, that's why you can't really play Goblin Welder today. So There's a number of reasons why you can't play Control Slaver, but that kind of deck, that kind of model, the Mana Drain deck with full Acceleration Suite and card advantage and then Bombs, that's what the consecrated sphinx decks are. Have, that's what the bomberman decks are.
1: Uh, I mean, I, I think you're you're lumping a lot of different archetypes into into sort of the basket category. I'm not sure. entirely comfortable with that that grouping.
0: I, I'm started, not. Those decks are the same. I'm just saying that's where this kind of card goes. Those are the decks that can play thirst for knowledge today. Oh, the, those are the decks that would play this.
1: Yeah, the the deck that prompted the eventual restriction of thirst was was um, And. I am of the opinion that if Thirst were unrestricted, it would be just the, the, the go-to blue deck that people would be playing.
0: Right. Um, I and, agree, too. That's why I d- disagreed with your statement about playing Control Slaver well, When I say
1: Control Slaver, I mean... I mean slightly broader than just the deck that uses Mindslaver and Welder. I mean something okay. that looks like a Tesserit a deck.
0: You know, which if spe- that's what you mean, then yeah. you and I are saying the same thing.
1: Uh, but I, I wouldn't put that in the same category as the decks that you called, like the answer, you, you know, those decks. I think those are distinctive. And, and the answer would not be using Yawgmoth's will, whereas I think this deck would.
0: Oh, okay. Well, I mean, that is a distinction, sure. But I think it's a distinction without a difference, really. Yes, those are different archetypes, but that is the kind of deck that would play this card. Thirst isn't going to be unrestricted anytime soon, so we're not going to be playing a graveyard based let's
1: hope. Let's hope.
0: blue control deck. Let's hope it's right? yeah, let's so I don't think you're gonna see a rise in Yawgmoth's will because of this card, because the synergy's not there. I mean there is some, don't get me wrong. There's non zero synergy, but not the way thirst was. And not the way great not the way the deck interacted fundamentally with the graveyard a la goblin welder. Okay,
1: so you build a blue, red, black deck, you know, with let's say with four of this this card. The question I'm having is it's really simple. Is that deck better with using this card or using four Nights Whisper, regardless of how it's positioned in the metagame? That's all I want to try and answer.
0: Interesting. Well, I think in, the, in a vacuum it's better with Nights Whisper, but that has a lot to do with the marginal utility of Mana Drain in such an environment in deck. Yeah, I mean you're really you're balancing
1: these factors. Let's be explicit about it. You're balancing the additional mana cost here against and the and the fact that you don't lose two life. Against the fact that this is blue in an instant, right? That's
0: the difference, yeah. And, yeah. and
1: the marginal marginal conditionality, which is really marginal. Um, but there's
0: other yeah. Well, there's but there's other opportunity costs too, because that Night's Whisper deck doesn't necessarily get to play with Thirst for Knowledge. This deck does I'm just a- almost by definition. So you're not just weighing Night's Whisper against one card. You you just can't because that you're weighing it against multiple structural things.
1: What's the relevance of that fact? I mean, it's one card. For, so you get to play with this. So you get to play with Thirst for Knowledge. So what?
0: Because because Thirst for Knowledge is restricted and quite good, and this is the deck that could maximize it in today's metagame.
1: And the Knight's Whisper deck couldn't? Right. The Knight's Whisper... Well, every single one of those versions of Knight's Whisper Control Slaver had Thirst, didn't they?
0: Um, but you're talking about Control Slaver, which this deck wouldn't be.
1: Okay. When I again, <laughs> going, going back to the terminology issue. Yeah. I'm, I'm talking about a Time Vault Tinker deck that uses Yogmoth's Will. Whether it has actually Mind Slaver or not is irrelevant to the issue.
0: Okay. Well, I, I, also, I think the presence of Yogmoth's Will is not a given either. I I, think you, I would be very happy to build a Tesseret or a Blood Moon control deck or some kind of consecrated Sphinx deck that doesn't have Yawgmoth's Will with this Artificer's Epiphany. I mean, these Bomberman decks today don't have Yawgmoth's Will, and they're a graveyard-based combo deck. So I think I think I feel like you're you're trying to distill the issue down further that can possibly be distilled.
1: Possibly, but I'm trying to figure out whether it. You know, the question in my view as to whether this will see play is in some way hinges upon its. its it's utility relative to Knight's Whisper because Knight's Whisper has proven it's a vintage playable. So if, the, if I can establish that this is on that level, or yeah, actually, I think this question—I think the, the question I pose in the conversation we have kind of answers the question itself. I've decided mm. this card is playable <laughs> because <laughs> if, if, if we can't decide whether it's better or worse than Knight's Whisper, it's comparable to Night's Whisper, and therefore yeah. it's, it's probably vintage playable. Yep. The question then is what sort of home does it have, and 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 that goes to your objection to my my framing of the question which is that you know you want a broader view because you think this could have more home which is totally valid and just underscores the fact that this is probably playable
0: yeah i agree also specifically control slaver didn't ever enjoy an environment where deathright shaman was legal <laughs> so yeah and, and, and you know turbo never had death right shaman so to speak so there's all kinds of possible interactions here that I agree with your conclusion. This is a vintage playable card. It's very tricky to find out if the deck that it's good in is good enough in vintage right now. Yeah. Because it's not like there were a bunch of Knights Whispers at the NYSE Open. We're talking in pretty uh, speculative space to begin with.
1: There may be a strategic dimension to this card that it has just struck me. I, I I want to focus on the specific prevalence or frequency thereof or not of Control Slaver. Look, Control Slaver at the beginning of last summer, I mean, Rich Shea played it in the VSL, like, I think, the first six weeks, right? Yeah. You know, that, that deck, he had success with it, and that was not just Rich Shea. That was, I think, you know, was performing well. Sure. But there may be a strategic dimension to this card, which is to say, you can imagine game states where, suppose you draw a Blightsteel Colossus, and you decide not to play your Mox in order to be able to discard it to this card. Or, you know, or you have some sort of recursive effect where you want to put the artifact in your graveyard. Right. But you, And then you play the artifact after you cast and resolve this card. Um, but you, you plan that out in advance, right? You see this in your opening hand. Yeah. Make a decision. Should I play the Mox and cast this, or should I just play three lands and then my opponent cast this? You can imagine that that choice being of some value.
0: Yeah. I agree completely. I mean th- I think that won't be the default, but no, no, no. this a, card has some flexibility. Yeah. Also this card interacts in a very clever way with Sensei's Divining Top to that oh, end.
2: Oh, well put.
0: Yeah. You could choose the basically you can choose. This card is modal yeah. <laughs> of a sort when you have Sensei's Divining Top as your only artifact. Yeah. <laughs> Fascinating. Yeah. Well, so we've concluded that this is basically a playable card that will need to have a new home, more or less. I mean, within reason, there's a cu- there are a couple of decks, and I guess yeah. it's not fair to say a new home. If, if I'm proposing that it goes in Consecrated yeah. Sphinx decks, then that's a deck that just made top and, eight at the NYSE. And,
1: and, I, and, and more, than, more often than not, I've seen, and I think that's probably accurate to say, I've seen these, uh, these Steel City Vault variants play Thought Cast for three mana.
0: Yeah, and I was just thinking of Steel City Vault as you were mentioning various archetypes, too. I should have mentioned it myself. That's the, That deck is not playing the kind of grindy game, of course, that this card kind of implies. Okay. But it still could be a possibility. It's definitely the blue-based deck that has the most access to the most artifacts within reason. Yeah, It's worth noting that J.P. Kohler did not play Thirst for Knowledge in his answer deck this past week. Let's see if anyone in the top eight played Thirst. Yes. There's thirst for knowledge in Brian Ritter's Esper Bomberman deck.
1: Not surprised. Yeah. Yeah. Um, th- this could go into a more controlling, to Vault Pipe deck where you have mm-hmm. fourth outcast before this. Why not?
0: Yeah. By all means, Seed of the Synod and this card are super good friends. Mm-hmm. I mean that that I mean if you put four Seed of the Synod plus the standard acceleration package and then one or two other things, either Chalice or Top or Key Vault. Yeah, they have
1: Top and Key Vault almost always. Yeah, so.
0: right. So the point is, is the satisfying the artifact requirement becomes a 90% kind of deal yeah. once you've made that simple base.
1: And these Steel City Vault variants, the Sin City Vault, the Angel City Vault, whatever you want to call yep. them, you could easily imagine just playing four of this, one Thirst, and four Thought Cast, and you have a pretty robust draw
0: engine. Absolutely. Definitely. And you could compete with Gush that way. That's the other thing, is these, any of these control blue decks these days just have to have a plan, have to line themselves up with Gush to have any chance.
1: Yeah. And these, Steel- you could just overwhelm your opponent with Card Event. I mean, it's two only two cards, which is a huge... You know, thirst capacity to dig should not be ever underestimated.
0: Granted. uh, The comparison to Gush breaks down pretty quickly. There's lots of structural reasons why Gush is dramatically different, but there's lots of advantages that you gain by being the big mana deck in a, in a matchup like that, too. So. Yeah, that's
1: why I hesitate to draw the... I haven't drawn the compression that, gosh, you did. But, I, yeah. yeah. Um, and those still vault decks, although they're certainly not popular right now, the boost could be significant. It doesn't take a giant boost to make something back. It brings something yep. back into the format.
0: Yep. Well, we've. I think we've labored the issue enough. Uh, should we start talking about quantities? Yeah, let's do it. I'm going to predict a non-zero number, but it's not going to be very high. Um, uh, the thing is, is that the time period after... The, the, we're talk, we're predicting the Eternal Weekend time period, and I think it's going to be one of experimentation leading up to the Eternal Weekend. Some people are going to try out new decks and tournaments and stuff to try and test the waters of the post-Origins metagame and the post-NYSE metagame. So, man, I really think a couple of people are going to have success with this. I'm going to say three. That might be underselling it, though. I just don't think... This card's not good enough to push a wave of grindy blue control decks that are big mana control decks to the forefront, I don't think. I think there are structural reasons in the format why that's very limited.
1: Well, I am also going on zero, but I'm going to go seven.
0: Seven. Fascinating. Seven's a big number. I mean, that's a that's past a threshold of playability. Seven appearances means you think this is going to become a pretty significant part of the metagame.
1: Well, you know, the cards that the cards that the mana confluence is like in the eighteen twenty range.
0: Like, when you get to 15
1: yeah. to 20, you get in a card that's, like, clearly going to see a good deal of play. You get, like, a card that you think is going to be a big part of the metagame. I I think you're getting in, like, the 25-plus range. 20, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think this is a card that will see, you know, it's going to see play in more than... It's going to see more than a couple top 8 deck lists. I don't think this is going to be a 1 or 2 of. I think this is going to show up in a couple... Multiple top 8s, put it that way.
0: Okay. All right, exciting. I like it. Now, let's go on to another card... Similar cost, okay, it has the same cost, with a dramatically different place. We're talking Day's Undoing, also for two you, sorcery. Each player shuffles his or her hand and graveyard into his or her library and draws seven cards. If it's your turn, end the turn. <laughs> This is Time Twister plus extra language. There's no two ways about it. We, we don't really need to belabor the mana cost and yeah. spell type because those are clearly playable as we've just determined. And Time Twister is still played today, right?
1: It's funny how extra language can all, can mean less. <laughs> in this case, less really is more.
0: No, more is less, you mean. Yeah. <laughs> more is less. Either in this way. Card, yeah.
1: Or more language means less. Yeah, less.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, we've encountered this problem time and time again when it comes to remaking cards in the Power Nine. Just add an extra sentence or yeah. two and the card becomes terrible. Discard your hand. <laughs> Lion's Eye. I was just going to say Lion's Eye Diamond is famous. <laughs> so, but, but. Those cards, many of them, have historically had their own niche, and Lion's Eye Diamond is, is restricted for a good reason. Yeah,
1: Lion's Eye Diamond is, is uh, I don't know what you want to call it, uh, what's the euphemism, but for case number one,
0: right? Uh, <laughs> patient zero.
1: Patient zero. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, Look at. Oh, actually, it's not patient zero though. Patient zero might have to be finished. brainstorm. Yes. I think I think brainstorm is patient zero for trying to fix the power nine yeah. and still screw it up. Yeah. He's, it's still making a restricted card.
1: Yeah, and there's a long list of them. You know, dimension yeah. returns is in that category. of right. The fixed time twister, in particular. Yep. Um.
0: Time spiral. Time spiral.
1: There's a long list. Jeez. Uh. So let's just focus in on the question. What do you make of this? It's your turn, and it's it's your turn your
0: turn clause so they're clearly trying to prevent you from abusing the new cards you just got and building an overwhelming advantage and or ending the game with those cards this turn it's funny to me because unlike cards like <laughs> well the spell the spell mastery mechanic which you asked about earlier and and my response was that threshold was clearly divide designed with standard in mind yeah because it was trivial in eternal formats. Right. I think this card is the other end of that spectrum. Yeah. Um. They clearly put that clause on there because they don't want us going crazy in eternal formats with our seven new cards. Right. Whereas that's not very easy to do in standard. I, I don't want to. I don't want standard players to get mad at me saying it's impossible. I'm just saying standards filled with cards that cost four through six mana and there's no mox in. So within reason, you're not gonna dump those seven cards you just got into play immediately. In vintage, a deck like Velcher or Tendrils, TPS, things like that, you are going to be able to do that if you still have time to cast them.
1: <laughs> well yeah, exactly. That's the point. If you have I mean it's clear that this new clause is a tremendous limitation. I th- yeah I think you you know it's akin, in a sense, to the discard your hand thing. It's it's really bad,
2: and yeah.
1: you know the whole point of a time. The re, the only thing that makes time twister type effects a, uh, asymmetrical is the fact that you get the first opportunity to use the cards that you drew, yeah. uh, and, and this clearly shuts that down. So the only question as to whether this can be playable is if there's a way of circumventing that drawback by, for example, playing this as an instant on your opponent's end step. And yeah. the most obvious way that everyone who's paid attention to the discussion around this card to do that is with Ley Line of Anticipation, although it's certainly not the only way. It's, yeah. it's probably the most obvious and convenient. So designing a deck around this would probably mean four Ley Line of Anticipation and four of this. And the question is whether that's a viable strategy. And that's a very difficult thing to evaluate Evaluate because you don't have, I mean, you'd have to probably run it out there and try it and do your damnedest to to make it work before you'd be able to, you know, within degree of certainty.
0: Agreed. We have a partial answer to the question though, in that the blue belcher decks, which are not a large part of the metagame, if you're not competing in the VSL, uh, that deck though already has all the other components in it. It <laughs> well, doesn't play the ley lines in the main, yes, but it has them in the sideboard. Yeah, exactly
1: right. That's the that's the big condition.
0: I I find it fascinating too that this t- speaking of unintended consequences, which might be the 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 subtitle of today's episode, <laughs> the the notion that this card heavily heavily incentivizes you to play with ley line in your main. Might push a deck like that in a direction that actually forces its players to embrace the the yeah. raw power and unpredictability yeah. of the thing, and right. actually make the deck better. Let's just be clear about this.
1: Leyline of Anticipation. This this card is insane with Leyline of Anticipation.
0: I mean, it's <laughs> yes. insane. Because you, yeah, we're straight up unrestricted time twister territory. Yeah, you can, as soon as you put the ley line in the equation.
1: Yeah, you can play you could imagine just going Leyline Anticipation in your opponent's first turn upkeep, mox, mox, mox opal, discard, days undoing, and then drawing the artifacts to play another time twist right then and
0: there. And, I mean with it it is ex- it's extremely Feasible. That's a terrible phrase. Extremely feasible. It is. You can. Ask. It is not. It is not unlikely for if you get just the ley line. I mean, just assuming you get the ley line and this is castable for you to kill your opponent during their first upkeep yeah. with Belcher. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there there are many possible result sets that end up with your opponent being dead to Belcher. Yeah, and the
1: and the the, the, the the Belcher decks. Um, have been, you know, inclining themselves towards running diminishing returns. as another, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, it, it, to me, it comes down to, is it possible to reliably find a ley line or another way of making this an instant? Is there another spell that can make this an instant, like on your opponent's end step?
0: There's um, there's Videlk and Aurora, of course, and then there's Quicken. Quicken says, an, it's an instant that says, the next sorcery card you cast this turn can be cast as though it had flash. That doesn't, well, it doesn't fully abuse the... Playing on your opponent's turn the way Leyline does. Right. Because they still, it's still their turn and you can't play anything other than the Time Twister or Days Undoing. Right.
1: That's the limitation.
0: Yeah. The ley line is so attractive because it lets you not only play this spell and all the other things, but just keep going. It, it works with other things as well. That's the thing about the ley line. If you have the ley line but you don't have days undoing, the ley line is still useful, useful. because you the, still get to do stuff on their first upkeep. The,
1: but the problem is not, is reverse though. Is that if you don't have ley line and you have this, this card is quite limited. Quite dangerous, um, in fact, quite
0: dangerous. <laughs> quite dangerous, but. However, I will point out that there's a long, there's a tried and true understanding about draw sevens in, in Vintage that we've talked about use time and time that. again, <laughs> which is the, just playing a draw seven on the play is a perfectly acceptable thing to do. You still get a- almost all of the advantage out of it, oh, that's- and the uh, the involuntary mulligan on your opponent is sometimes yes, effective.
1: And, and I... I- uh, to that list, I would also add the disruptive effect against dredge is non-trivial as well.
0: Yes. Um, oh, you know what? Hold on. Especially. Hold on. Wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. Okay. So the the ending the turn exiles this card as part of its effect, right? So it doesn't explicitly say exile this the way time spiral or diminishing returns do, or the way time spiral does. I mean. Uh huh. But it's implied by ending the turn because this this spell is still on the stack when you end the turn. So this doesn't get shuffled back in. But you just made a comment about the effect against dredge. If this card remains unrestricted, which it will be at least for the moment, then you can just play it repeatedly. So if your your dredge playing opponent goes in, huh? What
1: do you mean you can play it repeatedly?
0: I mean, you've got four of them in your deck, plus a Time Twister.
1: Yes, yes, of course.
0: Yeah, so what I'm saying is is that Time Twister is disruptive against Dredge, but it's a one-shot. This thing, because it draws you, because you've got ostensibly five copies of it, and because you're drawing seven cards, there's a very realistic possibility that you could chain these and keep Dredge off of having a graveyard for two or more turns in a row. So that effect is amplified because of the unrestricted nature of this card.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a card that you could play uh, turn one on the draw, I guess not against spread. No, oh, it's interesting. I see what you're saying. The, the end of the... Sp- the end of the turn means that they can't even respond to this by bizarring.
0: That's right. That's I didn't say that explicitly, yeah. but that's that's the point. Is they can't just say, okay, now that's done. I'll fill up my graveyard and take my turn. They don't yeah. get the opportunity to do that. They don't get to, to, do, that. to do that. The turn they can't upkeep. start their. They, yeah, they can't end your turn with anything in their graveyard. Yeah. So, but, because of that. But they could do it in their upkeep. Yes, but that's still dramatically different oh, and far weaker for them. Definitely. Yeah. They can't. Yeah. They can't. They, get, they can't most, have Icarids. They get in
1: most one dredge, They're
0: wrong. Yeah. They get most one dredge, They can't have Icarids come out there's plenty of reasons why that's far weaker for them and they could have a you know a middling turn where they do that on their upkeep and get you know a blood or one dark so and you right, just do this again the
1: dredge there's no question about it <laughs>
0: yeah it's yeah it's way it's way worse for them than other draw sevens have been in the past structurally I wonder
1: if that's good enough as a burning wish target just against dredge
0: almost certainly it is right well it's, it has to be
1: i just i don't it depends on the deck but it this is this is definitely fascinating
0: um to make it well, buy- hold on, there's one other thing though. Uh, to your point about dredge specifically is the whole ley line, this is this is an example of what I was talking about. If you're going down the ley line road, which this card heavily incentivizes you to do, it gets even better against dredge. Because if you have the ley line, you can respond to their their Narkomiba trigger with this spell
1: oh my goodness yeah
0: <laughs> you can let them dredge on your end well, step. this card is
1: actually incredibly disruptive with ley line of anticipation you can counter all kinds
0: yeah absolutely dredge is the biggest case oh, no of course. Oh, no
1: that, i'm sorry that's that's mistaken because the exiling does not happen on your opponent's turn
0: uh no that's true but yeah the, that's okay so the, you're not ending the turn to stop them the point is you're shuffling their you're getting rid of their graveyard. Wait, so you don't get you don't get the useful like you don't get to, to bizarre on my turn trick, but you get the even more powerful you don't have a graveyard trick in response to their trigger.
1: You know what? This maybe I'm reading too much into it and stared at this card too much, but this um, what is this this text called reminder text in parens? Yes, it is ambiguously placed reminder text.
0: Um, how so? Because
1: the sentence before it says, if it's your turn, end the turn, period. Then there's binder text that says, exile all spells and abilities on the stack, including this card. But it's not clear that it's specifically flowing from the previous sentence.
0: Well, that's just there. That's standard for them. I mean, scroll down and look at Harbinger of Tides okay. when it explains Flash. It takes the same format. Okay,
1: so, but, it, but that is only responding to the end of, end of the term, I see. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But, but
0: It is just reminder text. So yeah, anyway.
1: so the, the key question is whether the strategy that would use this is viable enough or whether the conditionality of needing to really have the ley line makes it too narrow.
0: I, I feel like there are two there are two primary axes you need to fight on if you're trying to build a draw seven deck in vintage, and I'm talking specifically from the context of the blue Belcher deck, but it applies to most. And that is you have to be able to fight through the counters of the aggro and and regular control decks, and you have to be able to reliably cast your spells against shops. Yeah. The Blue Belcher decks have done a very good job of addressing the control issue with threat density
2: yep.
0: and speed, but but threat density specifically. I mean, they have a really high density of threats compared to past combo decks. Oh good, yeah. And so they got all the Belchers, you've got the tesserets, you've got all the Draw Sevens. You just have more Haymakers than the modern control decks have counters. It's just that's why the deck is effective and good filtering via things like preordained to find it. The Leyline direction pushes you further down the spectrum you need to be against shops, which is why this is so beautiful. Because the ley line gives you a free and uncounterable way mind you to always go first against them basically yeah now it's not highly reliable i mean between coin flips being 50 50 and then half the time you're going to have this ley line what 40 percent of the time give or take yep so you've got good odds more than half the time you're going to be effectively on the play against them but that's all you're doing is effectively being on the play it's still no guarantee you still get shut down by not killing them on the first turn and then they play a sphere and a chalice so there's still other, it's not, you're not out of the woods in terms of fighting shops, but I think that's what one of the things I was alluding to when I said, forcing you to go down this ley line road may end up making this deck better just by out of requirement. I mean, there's
1: there's no doubt that you're going to be playing with play lines in this card, but that's still yeah. not the problem that I'm getting at. What do you okay. do when you don't have a lay line? You have this card. Your okay, so, so. Far, your answer so far has been, well, just handle it like you do with a lot of other crosshapps. Hold off until there's a right
0: moment. That's fine. Uh, that's an well, answer. yes and no. I mean. The my the first thing I said in response to that was the value of the turn one on the play draw seven. Yeah, the fact no doubt. I, I would yeah. play this on the on the play turn one every day of the week, and depending on how you structure your deck, you're probably going to be able to maximize it even on the draw. If your opponent goes okay, okay, you know, vol, a volcanic island delver, I'm still going to play this on turn one every time. That's right, fair,
1: that's fair. Yeah, you're, you're yeah, absolutely. Okay, you've got a fair point. That, yeah, I'm persuaded that this is this is playable.
0: So the only way you're really getting punished with this is in the mid game. Yeah, exactly. That's this is awesome. the, this is not a good draw seven in the mid game.
1: Extreme early game or extreme late game, this is probably fine. Yep. Um, the question is what happens in that middle part, and that's a big, that's a lot of real estate to be fine.
0: <laughs> it is. <laughs> and so, well, think of it. It's, I mean, this is not news to you, but uh, it's heavily comparable to Windfall, of course, right? Yeah. Windfall has the same feature. You want to play it on turn one. Or not at all, more or less. (laughs) Or or really late in the game after some other thing has happened, such that it's still good enough.
1: Like with Hercule's your opponent and then Type. Yeah.
0: Or other weird things, that's, yeah. That's
1: actually fine, right? Hercules, your opponent, Days Undoing, it's workshops. You'll do that every day of the week.
0: Oh, well, I mean, yeah. The, Sunday. the game-winning play there is the Hercules, not the Days Undoing. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but You're right, you would do that, but still. It's also worth noting, too, that uh, this is only just one piece in a cog, right? I mean, yeah. assuming you put it in a Blue Belcher-style deck or something that's been tweaked along that same line, you still, you're still you not sacrificing much to put this and Ley Lines in. So I think we've teased out that this card is playable. We've teased out the structure that it's probably going to be, at least initially, represented in.
1: <laughs> Can you imagine Time Twisters proliferating Vintage? This, <laughs> this is a lot. This is wild. Uh, I think I think people are really going to be reticent to play this card. I don't think people are going to be digging as deeply as we just have, at least at first blush. But this could be really exciting to see. To see. I mean, it's not hard to build a deck in the current environment with Chrome under. Box Opal League, Mox Diamond Unrestricted, where you can yeah. easily do this turn one. And, yeah, and you're,
0: that, you're right. You can make that super reliable.
1: Uh and I think that is very powerful. I mean you
0: could And don't forget, this goes in addition yeah. to the at least three other turn one I mean the three mana draw sevens we already have. Question. If you count Tinker, you're eight three mana draw sevens.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And those decks also can do a lot of like they can play things like uh defense grids and stuff like that to protect it. So, yeah. Um you know, uh, I, the biggest concern, of course, is that you can't. Here, here's a problem, though. You can't use Pact of Negation. Um, That's going to be. You can, but you, you probably can't.
0: Well, it's that deck. Okay it's the turn one thing is very unreliable i'll give you that yeah but i think that deck still has some pacts in it somewhere yeah maybe two or three and you're right you don't do it to make this resolve on turn one
1: and your opponent is going to force this if they can
0: yeah absolutely well i mean within reason though if that deck naturally draws an academy then sure you do pack to protect this on turn one probably right yeah, I'm saying that
1: there will be times you, pack. but if you just go mox mox land, which is going to be the most typical
0: use, you're not going to be. Yeah, you can't use you, you won't be able to pack for this. Yeah, you're right. Yep. So don't. Yeah, you can't expect your packs. You can't play four packs in this and expect to just chain this stuff together in the first Sorry, four turns of the no, game.
1: I misspoke. The most. Well, the most. Uh, probably consistent way of using this is probably going to be Mox, Mox, Mox. mox. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: Mox, Mox, and then Opal. Yeah. Or Mox, Chrome, Mox, Opal is going to be common, yeah. Yeah. And what do you think about the amplifying effects this has on the efficacy of cha- uh, Chalice of the Void, though? I mean, so, as we as we determined earlier, you're going to be virtually on the play, thanks to Leyline, probably 60 to 70% of the time, <laughs> something like that? Yeah, I think
1: that makes Chalice less relevant.
0: Interesting. Is there any way for workshops to really adapt to this? Can you get faster than a deck that's packing ley lines?
1: (laughs) You'd have to, yeah, not really. You'd have to run your own, right?
0: (laughs) Oh wow!
1: And you can't play workshops with Leyline of Anticipation, right?
0: Oh, that's right. You can't. So the best thing you could do like would be play your own Leylines yeah. and announce a Chalice in response to their first Mox.
1: They could respond to it with another Mox, though.
0: Oh, that's right. So you're only stopping. <laughs> oh, you're right. You're only. You're not stopping any mocks in that way. You're right. You can't fight that with that. Maybe Leyline of Sanctity so you're is stopping the way first the... No, you're not, because once a Mox is on the stack, the Chalice won't trigger on it.
1: Oh, that's right. Yeah.
0: What you said yeah. it was correct. It it doesn't stop anything. <laughs> So what you'd have to ha- what you'd have to do is play a sphere in response, and even then they can still just play all their spells in response. So no, <laughs> Leyline of Anticipation out of shops doesn't do anything here. I guess Leyline of Sanctity is the only thing. That's truly effective, but that's only against certain win conditions. It, it doesn't stop them from playing this draw seven, yeah.
1: Nor does it stop them chaining
0: the wayline. Oh, true. Right. They could just bounce it and, and go off if they've been given cart launch to play their time twister and over and over again. Then yeah, <laughs> you're out of luck. Wow. All right. So uh, uh, money where our mouth is. I went first for Artificer's Epiphany. Why don't you go first for this one?
1: Can you tell me how many um, how many Belcher decks top eighted the last sequence?
0: So are you talking about the immediately preceding three months from now? Exactly, yeah. So three.
1: Okay, I'm going to go three then.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think for as excited as you and I are, the Blue Belcher deck is exceedingly unpopular in Paper Magic, as the NYSE demonstrated, and it won't be... I don't think it'll be played as much in the VSL this time, either. Shorter time frame, it just won't have as much exposure, even if someone like Randy or Chris does play it. Yeah, I, I have a feeling people are going to play this, but it is going to be a low number. I don't think that a deck can be dominant. Yeah, I'm going to go one.
1: Okay, I have the over,
0: then. Yeah, I'm just thinking about all the exposure I had to Blue Belcher over the course of the last year, and it was always just a novelty, never high numbers i don't think anyone takes that deck very seriously. i mean it's players do, but not many others hmm. well we'll see also I mean I could be discounting a non belcher variant of this deck. there's easily another ten ways to build a deck when you've got when you've got eight to twelve draw sevens <laughs> Also we should mention that the most i think the most prevalent and immediate feedback about this card when it was first spoiled was in modern in affinity. Now granted in in vintage, affinity means something pretty significantly different. yeah I don't I don't think you're about to see a workshop aggro deck with draw sevens in it anytime soon. That's just not in the cards in vintage. And I don't think you can construct a thought cast aggro deck in vintage oh. that can compete with a deck that has the loadstones. Oh, I think we've established where this Yeah. All right. Fascinating stuff. Next up is Displacement Wave. XUU Sorcery, return all non land permanents with converted mana cost X or less to their owner's hands. Steve, it's been a long time since XUU was a playable casting cost in Vintage. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, the last time was Brain Guys. Right,
0: and we talked about this mana cost vis a vis Curse of the Swine a couple sets back. Huh. That card didn't manifest at all either. So but the simple truth is is that for for a lot of the functional utility of this card, X would be zero in vintage. Right. And so right. the mana cost of just UU is clearly playable.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But even in the in that regard, you would it's hard to imagine this being much better than any of the other, you know, effects that would cost the same amount that would do the same thing. Like echoing Truth or purple.
0: Mm-hmm and i think you have to group in engineered explosives too for the simil- for the similar functionality but clearly none of those cards will scale and be as powerful as this card theoretically um well i guess hercules would be engineered explosives doesn't scale such that if you have 100 mana it doesn't get much better where this card does
1: yeah it becomes up people right but, but unfortunately vintage vintage decks are designed such that they that they can explode onto the table with very few permanents mm-hmm. you know, one moment to the next so having a lot of permanence in play is not important i mean gush decks demonstrate the how how little losing a bouncing permanence really matters
0: right it's true and decks tend to not try to fight the token-based decks by bouncing them anyway in this day and age. The only bounce that's really played actively is, as you already said, Hercules and Echoing Truth and Jace the Mind Sculptor. Yeah. And those cards are far better at doing their job than yeah. this would be.
1: Yeah, there are other bounce spells that you play, like Repeal and Oh yes lesser extent chain of vapor which is also a storm enabler and then rebuild um and then there there are other marginal ones but you know the 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 advantage all those have over this is that it's they're instant Mm -hmm. they can play at instant speed now it is nice that this targets permanence which means it can bounce planeswalkers but we're not quite at the point in vintage where you need to bounce multiple planeswalkers at a time
0: (laughs) no and i don't anticipate us being there anytime soon also, most of the Planeswalkers have already done their damage once they're in play, I mean, in the matchups that are relevant. Right. If you could get to upheaval mana and bounce a Jace the Mind Sculptor, I think that would be that would be gravy. <laughs> Not the primary purpose of this card, obviously.
1: Does upheaval bounce a uh, Jace the Mind Sculptor? Sculptor?
0: Yes. Upheaval is non-land permanence. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. Upheaval is all permanence. I was thinking of... What was I thinking of? Whelming wave? I
1: was wondering if the text on upheaval actually specified card types or if it just says permanence.
0: Okay. I was thinking of whelming wave, which is all creatures. (laughs) That's funny. I don't know why I was thinking of that. No, upheaval is all permanence. That's a horse of a different color. So... The the point but, is is this will probably not supplant Hercule's Recall, which is the dominant bounce spell in the format for obvious reasons. And cards like Echoing Truth and and Engineered Explosives are seeing play these days. And Repeal, those are all seeing play these days due to their efficiency and flexibility, the instant yeah. speed, or the tutorability in the case of Engineered Explosives, or the cantrip <laughs> in the case of uh, Repeal. All of those things have alternate modes or something that else that they can do. This card doesn't really have that.
1: Yeah, it's not just flexibility, though. And even more specifically, it's multi-purpose use. Mm-hmm. So a Hercules Recall can bounce is, is a silver bullet against workshop decks, but it also is a storm generator. Yeah. And so you you find that almost all these bounce bells have multi-purpose use, um, as well as the kind of flexibility you mentioned. Uh, the, the, the only advantage that I can think of, of... Well, first of all, this actually falls into one of those categories, but not well, of <laughs> situationally worse or situationally better. <laughs> than existing playable. Unfortunately, the si- situations in which it's worse are just, you know, vastly outnumber the situations in which this card is actually just better.
0: Yeah. The only time you would really want the X scaling of this card is against workshops, I think, where it would be nice to be able to bounce permanents to cost four to six. And that's right. precisely the matchup where you're never going to be able to afford that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, granted, that's you don't get right. the six or eight mana in Vintage very often at all, but that's especially the format, that the, sorry, the matchup that's not going to allow for it. So you're never going to get the value of the flexibility that the X offers with this card.
1: Yeah, at four mana, you can bounce two non-land permanents, and it's just difficult to imagine when that would be really good. Yeah. Uh, the, the the one potential use of this card, I think, is as a Burning Wish target. Yeah. Um, because it's a sorcery, that's that's the you know, most obvious application. And, and it probably wouldn't go into a combo Burning Witch deck, but probably a more controlling one mm. if if they were to use it. Yeah.
0: Well, I don't think we need to belabor the point on this one. I'm going with zero. I, yeah, I assume you are as well. Definitely. That brings us to Harbinger of the Tides. UU, creature, merfolk wizard. You may cast Harbinger of the Tides as though it had flash if you pay two colorless more to cast it. When Harbinger of the Tides enters the battlefield, you may return target tapped creature and opponent controls to its owner's hand, 2-2 the Merfolk deck is already riddled with creatures at this mana cost and this approximate size. So the cost inside size... R-
1: riddled, riddled is a pejorative, <laughs> you know? Well. <clears throat> like, 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 like the deck is just full of termites or something. You could say that it's
0: lousy with them. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so the, the mana cost in this, in the body and the creature type are all clearly playable. Definitely. So the question is, does merfolk have a, a gap or a need for creature bounce that falls in line with its existing mana curve and general creature size?
1: Yeah, I think a close evaluation of this card would bear an, a deeper analysis of what merfolk decks actually use, what they've used in the past, and a, a sense of where... Where they would move in the future. So, you know, this is this is a card that would definitely be in the toolbox for a Merfolk pilot or designer. Um, but I can't think of anything off the top of my head where they use um, creature bounce. You know, where they really want creature bounce. Um, I would that said, I would
0: point out that some Merfolk decks yeah. have run Waterfront Bouncer. Is, that's a Merfolk, right? No, it's not. That's the unsummoned spell shaper.
1: Okay, that's true. Yeah, that's true. You know, so this is a, this is a competitive spot in that the two mana is is obviously a critical place for Merfolk decks. Uh, most of the lords cost three. Lord of Atlantis is the exception. What else costs two in these Merfolk decks?
0: Silvergill adept.
1: Silvergill adept. So this this actually might be a really nice place both for the mana curve and as far as um, this is uncounterable balance. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately the the condition here is that the creature has to be tapped. Yeah. Uh, and the the good news is there are a lot of merfolks that tap opposing permanents, right?
0: Well, uh, there are, in theory, but most of them are not played. The only one that's really played is uh, Marrow Regery. Right, so it's Regery they run tap. But that is a common card, so there is some built-in synergy okay. already to the standard deck. Yeah, I think what you've hit upon is exactly right. I think the, finding the spot for this is the trick, but it is, oh. I think, imminently playable. Definitely. It could be that it's and- just a sideboard card, because it's not... This effect is not very good in several matchups.
1: Well, let me just... It's been tacit, but let me be explicit. The... Um no, when you've got a cavern of souls and you're playing Merfolk, this could be huge. Yeah. Uh and it's also something, for example, your opponent tries to do a big strike on their turn and but they don't quite get you, you can well, you can when you have excessive mana, mm-hmm. as is sometimes the case with the Merfolk deck, where you, the mid late game you, just, you have more islands than you need, you can you play this on your opponent's end step, bounce their creature, untap and then alpha strike.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And if you're the sort of Merfolk deck who's running Aether Vile, which many, many are, oh, good point. Um, this because can become a combat trick, which would be especially <laughs> useful against Workshops. If Workshops yeah. manage to get out one of those super threatening top end creatures like a Worm Coil Engine, then then they go into the attack mode because attacking with Worm Coil engine is frequently the right thing to do. This is yeah. a, this is an excellent trump to a scenario like that. Same for Steel Hellkite. I think
1: it's an excellent point. Yeah.
0: And if you've got the Aether Vial, then it's just fully uncounterable. Also, so it provides yeah. an answer to Again, certain scenarios. The conditionality,
1: the conditionality is that your opponent's creature has to be tapped, yeah. uh, which is no small thing. But I think it's not sufficiently conditional to, to warrant, you know, having serious reservations about. <laughs> right.
0: It won't address, say, a revoker naming Aether Vial very well because that revoker is very unlikely to attack. Right. So there, you're right. There are some scenarios, certain creatures that are problematic that you, you might not get the chance yeah. to address because they don't yeah. enter the red zone. But even That's then...
1: Probably not, it's probably not going to bounce a laboratory.
0: <laughs> but yeah. even then, Merrill Regery is functional there.
1: Remind me of the text. Of, remind us the text.
0: Okay. So Merrill Regery is the three-mana lord to you, creature merfolk soldier. Other merfolk creatures you control get plus one, plus one. When you play a merfolk spell, you may tap or untap target permanent. So that's fantastic. Yeah. You know, this, is, Very this is a possible. natural
1: fit. Yeah, this is a natural fit. And this is a way that Merfolk can actually combat Pyromancer.
0: Good point. Very good point.
1: And and, and, mentor. and mentor. This is deadly. This is deadly. I think this is automatically playable in Vintage. And my answer for how many it'll see play is roughly proportional to the number of Merfolk decks that we've seen in top eights. <laughs> so once you've pulled that stat, that'll, that'll I'll give you my answer well,
0: using some internal algorithm. Let me look up then how many rejuries have seen play recently or top eights. So it looks like in the pre- most recent three months, April through July, there have been three top eight appearances by Fish. Three? Uh, I'm sorry. It's not three top eights, though. It's three top 16s. This one is up here in 15th place from the Eternal, That's Extra- it. Eternal Extravaganza. That's it. Yeah. That's less than I would have thought because I thought the deck was a, a solid tier one and a half kind of solid performer, but it's not putting up a lot of top eights lately. All right. Well, I agree with your conclusion. The question is just how many Merfolk decks really are out there. I don't think this card is a significant boost to Merfolk's effectiveness in the metagame. It's just a slightly better tool for certain scenarios. Might help the Workshop match up a little. Might help some of the other creature-based matchups a little. Yeah, I think it's it, you're, it's probably an auto-include in Merfolk to start with at least. And that just, meet, that just means how many Merfolk will we see. I'm going to go with one I'm going through did you say two or? You no know I'll,
1: I'll just take. The, i'll just take the over i'll just say you'll two. take two okay oh,
0: yeah we could see some merfolk pilots energized by this new tool and put up some more performances we'll see
1: yeah i mean i don't want it could definitely be a boost to the merfolk archive merfolks merfolks probably in a down period but we know how these things cycle through mm-hmm.
0: so yeah the changes that we're about to observe as a result of the NYSC Open, could uh, percolate into lots of different archetypes. Next up, we've got Jace, Vern's Prodigy. This is a fun one. The new flip, Legendary Planeswalker. One you, Legendary Creature Human Wizard. Tap, draw a card, then discard a card. If there are five or more cards in your graveyard, exile Jace, Vern's Prodigy, then return him to the battlefield transformed under his owner's control. He's a 0-2. His other side, Jace, Telepath Unbound, Planeswalker Jace, Plus one, up to one target creature gets minus two, minus zero until your next turn. Minus three, you may cast target instant or sorcery card from your graveyard this turn. If that card would be put into your graveyard this turn, exile it instead. And minus nine, you get an emblem with... Whenever you cast a spell, target opponent puts the top five cards of his or her library into his or her graveyard. Starting loyalty of five. So that's a lot of information. (laughs) It's hard to convey to flip legendary planeswalker via audio but there's the whole thing so we've got a two mana zero two looter that happens to be a human wizard and if you loot and put the fifth or more card in your discard pile then he flips his plus one ability is defensive target creature minus two minus zero his minus three ability which you can do immediately and keep him around is a, a mini Yoggmoth swill yawgmoth Will for one instant or sorcery and his emblem is just a milling engine which probably need not apply So, using our normal rubric, Steve, the mana cost of one U is clearly playable. There are on dozens of cards, creatures or otherwise, and the size is an issue in the sense that there aren't any zero anything creatures that see play in Vintage right now. But clearly, Jace is not in here to be attacking, so to speak. Can you think of the last time we had a looter or a looting effect that wasn't <laughs> Bazaar of Baghdad that was actually had utility? I mean, oh, we've got Dak fading right now. Definitely, so that's that's probably
1: Yeah, the looting effect is incredible synergy with with Dell. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, um, you know, I, I think that the 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 trick. I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here, but the trick with this card is that it's kind of set up a rube it's kind of a rube goldberg contraption mm-hmm. it does one thing that sets up another thing and it's not clear how synergistic those various things are now there's no doubt that depositing an instant or sorcery and allowing you to play it is pretty good while searching is also pretty good yep. but paying this the, much mana for it <laughs> yeah this this yeah i mean two mana is not bad but you've got to get to five cards in your graveyard and then you got to um you can only use his is. Uh, best ability once before you have to use his minus ability.
0: You mean his plus ability. He'll go from 5 to 2 if you use the Yawgmoth's Will effect. That's what I'm saying. It's
1: it's really a Snapcaster effect, right? That's what it is.
0: Uh, No, because it doesn't give the card flashback. I mean, it's functionally different. Snapcaster, for example, gives Gush a flashback of 4U. Oh, yeah. Jace just says you can play a card in your graveyard like you can with Yawgmoth.
1: It's closer to Snapcaster than No, it's the other way
0: around it's closer to Yawgmoth's Will, because it says you can just play the card. So you can do the alternate cost, like you, like you can gush with this.
1: Right, but you have to target, you only get to target one card. Granted. And Yawgmoth's Will allowing you to play multiple. Oh, I, think I see that's your
0: point. So the, the individual snap. targeting is more like Snapcaster, but the functionality of playing the card is the Yawgmoth's Will I, version. It's
1: not, it's not flashback. No, I understand yeah. that. But it's, it's closer to a Snapcaster effect than Yawgmoth's Will. Yawgmoth's Will be giving everything well, replayability. Granted. This, the, um, You know, I think is is valuable, but the, the question to me is how valuable is this recursive effect? That's gonna be the key. And um, you know, Snapcaster Mage tells us there's a lot of value to that. Mm-hmm. but but you get a body with that you get some tempo you get instant speed this is something that has to be done on your turn so it can't be a counter spell unless you're using it proactively right i mean so yeah. you could definitely be like okay i'm gonna flashback this fluster storm <laughs> rather you know not flash you know what i'm saying target use flashback. yeah i'm gonna target this fluster storm and then i'm gonna cast this tinker that's fine yeah. but is that really the best use of this <laughs>
0: My instincts tell me no. Given the preponderance of decks that really want to have large graveyards being delve-based decks and strategies these days, I would say the looting plus the flashbacking is going to suggest that you're going to be flashing back a Gush more often than not with this card. I mean, it's nice to have Ancestral would, Recall, yeah. but...
1: But this does have a synergy with Gush. I mean, yep. you can you can, you can know loot one of the extra lands out of your hand, then you can flashback Gush, and but you would have to you'd have to bounce the lands to do to flash it sort of flash it back here. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. So it seems like you're not you're not going to really be able to put together a very devastating chain. This is just a value play.
1: Exactly. And you're never going to get to the ultimate. That's just way out of out of.
0: Well, and nor would you want oh. to. This ultimate's not really yeah. useful. There's no matchup exactly. in Vintage where you really want this ultimate except for possible late-game, post-multiple sideboard card interactions against Dredge. <laughs> it is...
1: It is. <laughs> and if you got Dredge
0: to Dredge about a dozen times, and you managed to stay alive, you might be able to mill them out. But that's a corner case, and you're already winning that game, probably.
1: Yeah, I, I like how um, I like how the the minus two ability persists until your next turn, mm-hmm. so that that means they won't be able to attack the planeswalker with the creature. But of course, if they're attacking with a mentor, or something like that, then it doesn't really matter. That can grow. Yeah. Um, and a
0: lodestone is, I mean, your Jace would be at 6th yeah. loyalty. Your lodestone's still going to hit it for 3, which means you're still only getting the 1 minus 3 out of it within reason.
1: It is It is something, though, that this creature can come in, that this planeswalker can be cast, can be protected with the cavern of souls, yep. And, yep. and comes through a thorn. So there is something to be said for that. That's a fair point. I just don't think a human's deck is going to get enough value out of this forking card in your graveyard, right. whatever you want to call it. I just don't think that's enough. Well, there are
0: there are certain builds of Mentor decks these days that use Cavern, of course, so there's some overlap there. But
1: it's hard to imagine playing this over a Dak Faden, though.
0: Fair. Yeah, what would you play this over in a modern Delver-style shell? Okay, probably nothing. Could. So let's talk yeah. about uh, maybe a Grixis shell or a Bug shell. Okay, so... So some of the bug decks today are running Thought Scour, as we we previously discussed. No doubt, yep. This could be an alternative to Thought Scour. (laughs) The thing is, you don't get much benefit from Jace being a creature, aside from... The cavern interaction because being a creature is actively bad You're, you have to wait a turn to even activate him assuming he's going to flip the next turn he still has to he still has to live that long and he's just about as fragile as a creature can be blue so he gets hit by blasts Zero two so he gets hits by all the removal in the format including abrupt decay yeah. I, I don't know i just think too much fragile too much wasted time just for a loot plus possibly a regrowth effect Definitely. Yeah. All right. I'm going with zero.
1: Oh, I don't I don't want to go that far. <laughs> you want to go because, non-zero? Well, the reason is because, you know, just because we don't have a natural place for this right now doesn't mean there isn't one. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think there's a lot of pluses for it. It is a little Rube Goldberg-y, but but it has a lot of bonuses like you know like synergy with cavern getting through thorn its efficiency it's it's the way it builds up you know by looting the value of looting to delve although the looting is quite slow here um you know i'm just trying to imagine what kind of deck would use would use the uh minus 3 really effectively and and again the the problem is you're going to have to go you have to go minus 3 plus 1 minus 3 right mm-hmm. so that's that's like four or five turns after this thing comes into play yep. Best at best
0: to get two regrowths, basically. Yeah, plus a little bit of looting.
1: Yeah. Okay, I'm going to go zero as well. (laughs) But I wouldn't be surprised if this shows up like in a Brian Kelly type deck.
0: Yeah, agreed. This next card has brought up some very interesting uh, interest on social media and the mana drain dark petition. Is 3 BB for a sorcery. Search your library for a card and put that card into your hand. Then shuffle your library. Spell mastery. If there are two or more instant or and/or sorcery cards in your graveyard, add BBB to your mana pool. <clears throat> so five mana, demonic tutor slash ritual. Steve, 3 BB as a mana cost. The only thing I can think of is Yawgmoth's bargain.
1: <laughs> well, Yoggmoss bargain costs six. I know. The 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 only thing that I can think of that costs five that's really seen play in any point is Ad Nauseum.
0: There you go. That's a better example.
1: And Ad nauseum is, is something you build up to in the game. Right. Um this, this doesn't strike me as that kind of card. This is the kind of card where you play it, you find necropotence and you cast it for five mana. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, necropotence or yogmos will, depending yeah, on I the status like, of the game, right?
1: Yeah, even aside from the casting cost, which I think is incredibly prohibitive. Uh-huh. The main thing is, you know, when you cast this card and you Demonic Tutor, how often are you going to be able to use that three mana? That's the critical question to
0: me. Well, so if, as, if, as you and I have just yeah. observed, there will be clearly certain targets that will be always castable yeah. off the three mana. Necro and Will.
1: Yeah. Necro and Will are two obvious ones. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Also, depending on the constituents of the rest of your hand, you could chain this into a Demonic Tutor. So if you're holding Will, you could go Dark Petition into Demonic Tutor the into, into Lotus, but if you're holding will, most games. I mean, and, and you're in a position to resolve it. Most games are one anyway. There, it's been a long time since there was a real tutor-based combo deck in the format, in this in this style.
1: Workshops are so oppressive right now. Yeah. I think that, that, um. I, I I don't think this is going to see any play, and I don't I don't think there are broad enough applications. If 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 it gave you the flexibility of choosing your colors of mana, maybe. Hmm. But being stuck in the black, black, black is very constraining.
0: Yeah. Yeah, because the tutor targets you want to answer certain scenarios in Vintage these days are very frequently non black. You're going to need to get Hercule's Recall, and you're going to want to get Game Breakers in certain scenarios like Mind's Desire, which just this can't. I mean, it helps you cast Mind's Desire, granted, but you would need another four. I'm sorry, another three mana after the five you just spent on this. Right. Now, getting now casting this and getting Black Lotus is pretty spicy. No doubt. So if you've already that, got that, the Mind's Desire, that's fun. Yeah, then you're all in. Of course, if you but do you that, you cast- wouldn't get Lotus. You would get Demonic Tutor for Lotus for Mind's Desire. I mean, that's an extra three storm going into your Mind's Desire.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, even even aside from the problematic effects, the casting cost is just prohibitive up front.
0: Yeah if someone were to try and put together a deck that used this as part of its engine i would say they should probably take a look at ad nauseum right yeah because that's a deck that's yeah. at least structured to cast a spell with this mana cost you could restructure it of course because you're not limited by the card ad nauseum but and you'd have to not play ad nauseum in a deck that had five fives in it like this i mean five mana spells right i agree with that well, I think it's if the winds ever change and rituals really come to the fore, at least as a, a viable uh, leg of the stool anymore, then this card will be worth considering, but not but not before. Yeah. Let's talk about another relatively expensive black card, Demonic Pact. For 2 BB, it's an enchantment. At the beginning of your upkeep, choose one that hasn't been chosen. First one is Demonic Pact deals 4 damage to target creature or player and you gain 4 life. The second is target opponent discards 2 cards. The third is draw 2 cards. The fourth is you lose the game. (laughs) Always a crowd favorite. Yeah. So, this, I, I find it funny to analyze this card. Let's start at the mana cost, right? 2 BB. We just talked about Ad nauseum at 3 BB. 2 BB is kind of an enigma. Juzam Jin? <laughs> I honestly cannot think of something other than Juzam Jin now. It's stuck in my head.
1: Yeah, 2 BB is not a casting cost that I think sees play in Vintage. Um, I can't think of anything right now. Oh, Leyline of the Void is obvious, but that isn't actually played at that casting cost. <laughs> right.
0: It sometimes is, but yeah. very rarely. I'm not sure that that means this casting cost is unplayable, but it just might mean that there's never been a card that was quite right, at least not in the last 10 years. At any rate, this effect is, is really interesting, because the first three abilities, right, you get three turns to live and win the game, in my opinion... At least two of these three abilities are pretty highly relevant for Vintage, because four to a creature would be very useful in many matchups right now. You pretty reliably kill a Mentor, kill a Lodestone Golem. You know, it's got its its place. You're overpaying for that effect, granted. And drawing two cards, okay, fine. That's going to be part of your winning the game, because you need to get past the fact that you played Demonic Pact in the first place. And your opponent discarding two cards, that's probably third out of fourth on the list from a Vintage context because non-specific discard is just not powerful enough in this format, especially when Gush is so prevalent and when Workshops plays to the board so fast. Him to Turok hasn't been a thing in this format for quite a while, and that's that's better than this discard. So I would say you're overpaying for creature control, and you're overpaying for card drawing. You're way overpaying for discard, and then you lose the game. So the only reason this card would be playable is if you could manage to construct a deck that really needed a couple of turns of this kind of safety, and then just one.
1: Yeah, I think that the, the versatility that of the first three abil- abilities, rather the utility, the, vers- the utility derived from the versatility of the first three abilities is, is notable. Mm-hmm. And, and definitely a viable set of tactics. You know, um, the casting cost is, is a bit much. Uh, the limit that you can only you, you have to wait until your upkeep to use one of these as a limit, is limiting as well. Um, but I think I think that there is a, a direct um, sort of tension built in, which is that these kinds of abilities are designed to extend the game, and yet extending the game results in a game loss here. <laughs> uh, therefore, the fourth ability is an is, is a absolute prohibition on the the viability of this card.
0: I would say you're at face value, you're right, unless a deck. Could unless the deck had a built-in way to get rid of this. (laughs) And it's I know sacrificing your own permanence is 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 throughout history is fraught with peril. But I mean building in cards (laughs) that only do that. But I would say there there are vintage playable cards that we've already discussed even tonight that could mitigate the the giant looming drawback on this. Think of chain of vapor or nature's claim. So it's conceivable that you could construct a deck that was expecting to perhaps outlive this card. Literally, with cards that are already legitimately playable in their own uh, right.
1: Yeah, I mean you'd have to play like uh what's that card that you used to play that you sacrifice a permanent on each upkeep? Not smoke stack, the black one. Black smokestack. Braids? Yeah, you'd have to play a braids type card. Well,
0: <laughs> I don't even know. You know, that's funny. You mock, but why not? I mean it's not like there is it's not like there's been a workshop based deck that had colored mana in it that was highly effective for years. But if you go back said years, workshop decks were based on not based on, included colored spells. And so that's an example of what I'm talking about. If you had a deck that had built-in synergy, if a workshop deck, okay, ignoring mana cost, which is a scary, frightening phrase, but... Ignoring the mana cost issue, this sort of thing would be welcome in a workshop deck. This, these two out of these four abilities would be very beneficial. You want your opponent to yeah. you want your opponent to not have uh, permanence on the board, so you can four damage to a creature is nice.
1: We have, we haven't said it yet, but this thing is this thing is a little bit like a, a Dark Times card. Yeah. You know, it's a, it reminds me a little bit of not only Liana, but the kind of cards that Dark Times would want. The problem again is that that fourth that fourth ability. Yeah. You know, this actually is also a little bit like a planeswalker. Yeah. You know, you get to choose one of these abilities a different one each turn.
0: I was going to mention and I'm glad you brought it up it, exactly that the sort of black based deck that wants to buy time and get value and then quickly win the game uh, a a thespian stage dark depths combo deck is an example of that kind of deck the kind of deck yeah. that would really enjoy to draw a couple of cards really enjoy to stay alive by killing a creature and or disrupting one its opponent and then just yeah. bam win in one turn
1: right but 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 setting up that combo may take longer than just cards
0: <laughs> yeah it's true um, it's true, but hey, you could have a dark time style disruptive, you know, uh, combo control kind of deck that that had main deck nature's claim that as an emergency, you know, lever for this this card. Yeah. Such that if you if you try to execute your combo and it gets stymied by a swords to plowshares or something, you can still uh, pull the shoot and keep playing. I don't know. I don't I don't think it's very promising, but clever deck builders have come up with cleverer things in our time. Throw a smokestack in there maybe and you got lots of lots of reset buttons for this.
1: Your opponent will be doing everything they can to remove that smokestack. <laughs>
0: that's that's true. That's true. But hey, diversionary tactics, right? If they're doing that, maybe they can't deal with the dark depths. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I'm not optimistic about that kind of thing. I just am loath to rule it out, as you have said in many cards before. The utility here is real.
1: <laughs> I'm comfortable ruling it out simply because you lose the game. Clause is so horrible.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Let's, let's do a thought experiment. If that last ability was anything short of you losing the game, anything, like you lose 10 life, let's say, or you discard your hand or something. Discarding your hand is a bad example. You can totally play to that. Let's say you sacrifice all your lands or something. You know, anything short of straight losing the game, do you think it goes way up in playability in your eyes?
2: Definitely. No doubt. Okay.
0: I would buy that. I would. I mean, I would agree with you. Any other kind of loss, not loss condition, but any other kind of horrible drawback can probably be designed around losing the game. It's hard to design around. Yeah. Oh, you know what? Platinum Angel. Huh? <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> all right. So zeros for both of us, I'd say. Next up, another legendary Planeswalker. Liliana, Heretical Healer, 1BB, legendary creature, human, cleric, lifelink. Whenever another non-token creature you control dies, exile Liliana, Heretical Healer, then return her to the battlefield, transformed under her owner's control. If you do, put a 2-2 black zombie creature token onto the battlefield, and she is 2-3. Her planeswalker form is Liliana, Defiant Necromancer. Plus two, each player discards a card. Minus X, return target non-legendary creature card with converted mana cost X from your graveyard to the battlefield. Minus eight, you get an emblem with whenever a creature dies. Return it to the battlefield under your control at the beginning of the next end step. Starting loyalty of three. There is a lot going on with this card but starting with the mana cost we're having real troubles thinking of these these black mana costs tonight can you think of a 1bb of course hypnotic hypnotic specter <laughs> <laughs>
1: no i i'm mentioning all the cards that, that yeah you're thinking of all the old school magic I know. cards and, I, and i'm thinking of all the black cards that have alternative mana
0: costs right so yeah you're, you're you're sort of right with this member of course which is a little bit better of an answer than leyline of the void was
1: <laughs> yeah i mean there's no doubt that um, three mana is not prohibitive for a black card, yeah. especially a creature. So that 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 is not a, a tremendous issue here. Yeah. Of course, the question with any mana cost is: is the effect worth the cost? Um, and that that's what we have to evaluate. Um, let, let's just break it down. So, what is the value of a two-three creature that yeah that has life length?
0: I I want to point out there's a there's a corollary to Trigon Predator, which is three mana two three. So there's yep. that. If you've ever blocked a middling creature with a trigon predator, then then you know kind of what the value in combat really is. It doesn't stand up to most things, but she does stand in the way of Young Pyromancer and its tokens, Unflipped Delver, Deathrite Shaman, Phyrexian Revoker, and Monastery Mentor to a tiny degree. Or a monk, she stands up reasonably to a certain size of monk, so it's not it's not uh, without value. But she's not there really to threaten your opponent's life total very much. Right, two three is a reasonable size. She still dies to lightning bolt, which is unfortunate. She would be much better in vintage as a one four, of course. But at any rate, I'm not complaining. Her flip condition, though, is entirely a different animal than. Jace's.
1: You want, how do you want to do this? Do you want to analyze her, or either her flip condition or do you want to analyze her effects first?
0: Let's talk about the the flipped planeswalker side first. Okay. Be, but they obviously they're closely tied. Definitely.
1: E- each player each player discarding a card is not the worst, but I don't think that's a very valuable thing in Vintage. I'm never threatened when my opponent activates that from Liliana mm-hmm. of the Veil, right? I mean that doesn't feel that doesn't feel very threatening. If it was random, that would be a totally different question. Yeah. But Choosing to discard a card, I don't feel like that really matters.
0: It's a very grindy thing, and it's hard to be very grindy in Vintage right now because there are some decks like Workshops and Landstill and Bomberman to some degree. Those decks are far better at being grindy. Now, you could make a case that you could try and fit Liliana into one of those decks. Probably not Workshops. Eh, Likely not Landstill. But maybe a grindier positioning of Bomberman or Grixis. You know, that's a possibility. It right. would be hard for bug, uh, current bug uh, aggro control builds, to turn this into a grindy affair, except for certain mirror match games. Yeah. So I, I agree with you. It's not the worst. If you can combine it with a couple other things, you know, if you've got thought seizes involved, or you're snap thought seizes, then it adds up. But that's just not yeah. common these days.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, to be honest, I'd rather just have a 2-3 lifelink than, <laughs> than a thing that makes you discard. This second ability doesn't seem to have a lot of value either. I mean, you're returning a creature with converted mana cost, what kind of creature are you going to be returning on average? What is it? A Deathrite Shaman? Well,
0: what? that's why I said that it's the flip condition and the other abilities are hopelessly tied because the answer to your question is probably whatever creature you sacrifice to flip her. <laughs> right. Yeah. And in that case, you could make a case that it doesn't matter what creature it is just because you're getting it back. But it,
1: yeah, but what, but what, but, but the, we can't evaluate the value of this until we figure out what kinds of creatures we're getting back uh,
0: to or what you, what benefit you got out of sacrificing that creature.
1: But you're, you're focusing on the condition. I yeah. want to focus, the, I want to untangle for the moment, just in, in focus on the value of this return ability, this resurrection
0: ability. Uh, and I would say it is inexorably tied to how you got to the point of resurrecting the creature. For example, if the creature that died was a young pyromancer that was sacrificed to flashback Kabal therapy, right, right. then the value of bringing up back a young pyromancer could be quite high. Right. Yeah. Similarly, with a, a death deathrite shaman that was cast, you know, sacrificed for the same reason. I, I, that's that's why I think these things are are very closely integrated because it seems pretty clear to me that you're not going to make this card go without running it in a deck that has cobble therapy. Okay. And so, that's fair. and so the the fact that you're getting back a creature is not the only benefit you're getting, right? It's I understand. yeah. So. so but to your point, there are not a lot of creatures in Vintage that exist currently for their okay. ability to be sacrificed outside of Dredge.
1: So, yeah, I mean, you're, you you want to focus on the sacrifice thing, so that's fine. We'll go there. You know, I want to know, I want to be able to evaluate the casting cost of the value of the effects. Yeah. And I've already said that. I don't think that the discard is very valuable. Therefore and the the ultimate doesn't seem very reasonable feasible either so i want to i want to focus in on this minus x because that's where the that's the the, the, the most value is going to be derived from this card is from that ability yeah. if that ability is marginal best, i think we can write this card off mm. uh but if that ability is meaningful and you can show me that you can get really recursive value out of it then then i'm willing to evaluate this card but until then i can't really do that i think you're right i think that you know first of all there aren't a lot of ways you know to to um, naturally sacrifice creatures in the format mm-hmm. that that are really strong. The most obvious is Cabal Therapy. Another, I believe, Liliana say both creatures sacrifice, both players sacrifice a creature. Target player. No, doesn't, that's it's an Target edict. player. Yeah, yeah. It's an edict. So I mean there really aren't I mean the two main ways you're gonna get this thing to flip are A your own cobalt therapy or B combat. And your opponent is gonna be incredibly careful about combat scenarios that will allow this to flip. And they're only going to they're only going to put themselves in a position where this flips if it's beneficial to them. That is, that the the planeswalker is probably worth the worse than the two, three lifelink.
0: I think the second half of what you said is, is, is only a half-truth. I mean, if your opponent is avoiding combat with you for the purpose of keeping her unflipped, then that's a situation you can manipulate to your benefit. If I'm yeah. against workshops and they're not attacking me with Lodestone Golem because I don't want Liliana to flip, I have already had a victory of sorts, right? Yeah. So that, I, I can't go with you whole hog on what you've just said about your opponent's avoiding combat. If you construct your deck such that you are using her to avoid dying to combat, well then you're getting into that grindy game we talked about and you're playing to your strengths in, in a handful of matchups. If you have creatures that are one toughness, for example, I can't think of a great example right now, a dark confidant. If you've got dark confidants, right, which seems like a reasonable inclusion in a deck like this and your opponent is completely unwilling to tack on the ground, well, then that's a huge win. It's making your Bob better. It's keeping your Liliana around so that you can control the scenario, and you're, you're, you're avoiding combat.
1: That's part of the calculus. That's part of the decision matrix for your opponent. Right. The general question here is: How easy or frequently would you be able to flip this? And there's two parts to that question. In what ge- what percentage of vintage games, generally speaking, this in play will you be able to flip it? Period. And two, on average, how long will it take you to be able to do that? And my answer to that question is, I think that there is a large percentage of games you'll pass this, resolve it, it'll be in play, and the game won't last long enough for you to flip it because you didn't have your Cabal there, but you didn't have a way to, to um, um, sacrifice a creature or, or have a creature, not another creature go to the graveyard because your opponent killed you with a Blightsteel, an Alpha Strike, you know, they tendrils you, whatever, right? They attack you through the air. I also, so I'm saying, like, I'm just making a ballpark here, but let's say out of the, the universe of games in the Dark Times type deck, that you would cast this, resolve it. I think it's probably more than 25% of the time, you probably won't be flipping this, around 25% or more. So it could be 33%, 50%. I'm saying that. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I'm saying that. Um, um, the amount of time it will take you to flip it is probably unreasonable. That is to say it may take probably, you know, there's going to be a lot of games where you get this into play and you do flip it, but it takes two turns or more. So that's what I'm getting at is I'm saying this, this conditionality is unreasonable because the amount of time it's going to take and the consistency with which you can do it are just too great. That's my assessment. Okay. And that And, and that's, the reason I wanted to do that analysis is because the viability of this card hinges on the value of the effects and the conditionality with which it flips because you know you open your hand and you don't have cabal therapy there's only four of them in your deck there's gonna be a lot of times where you just don't draw it until you know whatever you don't draw it until this has been in play for a while or you don't to draw it at all
0: and what creatures do you think you would get back in such a deck
1: well that's the that's a whole the, the other piece of analysis i don't know i'm just saying it seems like this deck would probably be using death shaman and dark confidant on it. so you know, you could probably recur them a lot. You know, you're going to get them back a lot. I can see you getting back Bob, sacrificing and getting it back. Same with Deathrite Shaman. Um, so I think there's some value to that minus X. Uh, I, don't, I can't think of a, a lot of the other black creatures off the top of my head. The Dark Confidant has long been one of the best black creatures, so it's natural, natural consideration.
0: But it's not very good right now exactly exactly you
1: know what you know what i take i completely take back what i said there is another creature that's used in dark times that has a built-in sacrifice vampire hex mage yeah and and that's a very natural use for this mm-hmm. uh, so um you know that's still only that's still eight ways so there's still gonna be a lot of times where where you aren't able to do that um Right, uh, but the vampire hex made definitely increases the the i think the reliability with which you can you know trigger this condition
0: dark times as a deck has not made any kind of waves in quite a long time. in fact, there hasn't really been a major dark depths thespian stage based deck, and there's been a lot of attempts in lots of different shells, and it's just never broken right. through but this card. I don't think this card by itself is enough to push that strategy over the edge, per se. This is a utility card, right? It's it's going to be getting back whichever creature helps you the most in your situation. If you have a a small selection of them in your discard pile, be it Phyrexian Revoker, Bob, Young Pyromancer, Vampire Hexmage, Snapcaster Mage, you're going to get back the one that's... So it's a toolbox. Yeah. I mean, not that you're going to have 10 creatures in your graveyard all the time. I think that this deck tends toward the grindiness, it tends toward wanting to be built kind of like Bug is today, especially the one that made top 8 at NYSE Open, which doesn't have Bob, but which has a uh, heavy reliance on Snapcaster Mage. So I think this is a toolboxy kind of card. She's a human when you cast her, which is, as we've said, upside.
1: Yeah, you could also run Innocent Blood as another way to sacrifice
0: Yeah, I I really think you're undervaluing how easy it is to get your opponents to kill your creatures in Vintage these days. I mean, think of if you're playing Delver and your opponent has a creature that you're trying to get through, either you kill it... Or you're not attacking on the ground with any of your elementals. And my point from earlier is that if you design this grindy deck that way, then you've already you've already had a value. You already gained the victory you're trying to gain by this. If your opponent waits a turn or two and doesn't attack you, you've either got Bob, you're drawing into X, Y, and Z, or you just find your Cobble Therapy in two turns and flip her and go to town, bring back the uh, Snapcaster Mage, bring back the Abrupt Decay, and all of a sudden your opponent's like, why was I waiting? <laughs> now my now they just drew three virtual cards in one turn and I just got decimated. I just think that kind of thing is very real for this card.
1: Um, you know, the, the blue decks have so much more capacity to, to knit together these kinds of combo synergies. Mm-hmm. The black decks really... Uh, have much less search and draw. Um, you know, Dark Times, I don't know exactly what it relies on for draw. What does it use?
0: Well, there's no standard Dark Times list, but I would say that it uses Bob, it used Bob yeah. It. And it uses tutors, right? You're going to be having Demonic Vampiric, possibly Demonic Consultation, and possibly night's Whisper. I, I, I don't think finding card advantage in a a heavy black deck is really an issue in Vintage these days.
2: Fair enough. I don't think this card
0: revives that archetype. I really don't. I think the only reason we got down that road is just because combination yeah. of Vampire, Hexmage, and some other concepts. I really think this card's natural starting place is in Bug, and Bug with a tweaked creature base. Does,
1: does Bug use Liliana?
0: It has, but Liliana's not very good right now. I'm sorry, Liliana, obviously the the Edict version.
1: How how many decks in the recent past have used Liliana? Can we just take a look and see what those Yeah, are,
0: very few. In the last three months, three appearances of Liliana in the veil. each one of them in Deathrite Shaman-based Bug decks. Interesting. I don't think that's a it's not a great comparison because Liliana the Veil is there for the edict effect primarily. And edict is about the worst it's ever been in vintage in the last 20 years right now. <laughs> yeah. Whereas this effect based on recursion is entirely a different you know, value engine.
1: Yeah. I mean, I like how the, I think lifelink is definitely non trivial here. I mean, Delver decks, try and whittle your life down with burn and all that stuff. Yep. And, and, you know, the, the, this thing is going to be a magnet for the for the, the bolts in the first instance.
0: I also think that her emblem is not irrelevant. Unlike Jace's that we discussed. The line, the line what it does. It's lifeline. Whenever a creature dies, you get it back at the end of the turn. Nice. Yeah. That think That's a win condition against things like workshops. How is a workshop deck going to kill you if you get that emblem and you have access to, like, one shatter? If you have access to one ancient grudge. They're gonna have it. That's like that's like almost as bad as Dak Faden. That emblem is <laughs> against them. Now that's that's a little bit of an overstatement. I, I'll get, grant you that. But my point is is it's not irrelevant. And the same thing goes ironically for Dredge. If you can stop the tokens, right. Which you might be doing in a deck like this. You might have virulent plague. You might not, but you might have stopped their tokens and be at risk of dying to like bloodgast and but You get that emblem, and all of a sudden they they don't get their creatures back. I, I think it's I think it's functional actually. Rare but yeah. functional.
1: And I also think that the lifelink is really useful for helping you survive your bob flips. Um, mm-hmm. that that actually matters. Yeah. Th- that's this what I was getting
0: definitely- at earlier. Is if you're constructing a scenario where your opponent is disincentivized to attack you, then dark Confidant becomes that much better in vintage.
1: Well, this this I think is is a potentially natural home in um, in dark times. I like the fact that um, you know I like the fact that it can recur Vampire Hexmage a lot. Um, has,
0: I'm wondering her minus ability has synergy with Tasiger as well.
1: What 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 other use does Vampire Hexmage have in the format?
0: right Killing planeswalkers, yeah, removing definitely. removing token or counters from Tanglewire, chalice of void Smokestack, Those are all and uh, arcbound ravagers or Triskelions.
1: Yeah. So that's immediately useful. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Hexmage's ability to just sacrifice destroy target planeswalker doesn't manifest very much in vintage outside of people trying to play dark uh, dark times, but it's yeah. a very realistic thing. You can just straight up kill a a, a DAC, for example, without messing around with combat.
1: <laughs> I'm willing to I'm willing to say after our holistic analysis. <laughs> But I think this is playable.
0: I think it's right on the edge. I think that, ironically, if it wasn't for Tassiger, I think this would be a better card. <clears throat> and by that I mean bug decks, the, the surviving bug decks, basically, have found out that Tassiger is a valuable engine card. And with in combination with Snapcaster mages, you don't need very much recursion to get over a threshold of value. Right. So it, it, I think it's a very relevant question as to whether or not this whole... Concept of building a Liliana deck is better than just adding Tassigers to a bug list, mm. and I think the answer to that might just be no. If there's yeah. other ways to get okay, so Tassigur has some limitations. You can't; it's not narrowly targeted, right? It's a value engine, happens to be very valuable with Snapcaster Mage, which becomes narrowly targeted. So Liliana has an advantage in that she gets a specific creature back guaranteed, assuming you have the the X the loyalty to to do yeah. it. So your Vampire Hex Mage analogy could be kind of the linchpin in this deck over the standard Taggor bug build.
1: Yeah, I mean to be honest in a number of ways I think this card might be better than Liliana. I mean certainly the Planeswalker seems just as strong.
0: You mean Liliana of the Veil? Vale. Yeah. Yes, I think this Planeswalker That's- is better than Liliana of the Veil vale right now. The recursion yeah. is it's- it's- much broader yeah. utility and easier to a- abuse than just an edict is. Right. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about let's talk about playability. I think The last time we predicted a non-zero number, you went first. No, 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 wait. I went first, and you took the over on Harbinger of Tides. (laughs) Not fair. (laughs) Um, I really do think this is the sort of thing that vintage brewers will experiment with i think the fact that she's a human the recursive elements are pretty attractive i think the same sort of people who played liliana of the veil in the last three months will be attracted to this yeah i also happen to think that bug just got a shot in the arm from making top eight at nyse which means it'll probably garner more attention those two things combined means you're going to get maybe some creative bug variants in the next couple of months yeah so i don't think it's going to be a big what?
1: Because Bob Buggex didn't have Bob. And I'm pretty sure they didn't have fault there.
0: That's right. So some creativity will be in order. Absolutely. I'm going to go non-zero, though. I'm going to go with two. I think some creative folks are going to have a little bit of success with her.
1: Well, I think this card is vintage playable. It's interesting that you said you thought it was borderline. And, and you're you're going to take the over because I'm going zero. Yeah. But I, I think this I think this could see play. I just don't think it will in the next three months.
0: Fair enough. It'll be very interesting to see. Abbot of Carol Keep. Why it's not Ker-Keep, I do not know.
1: It's definitely a, a homage to it, though.
0: One red creature, Human Monk. Noticing a theme here. Prowess. Huh? Prowess. One Abbot of Carol Keep enters the battlefield. Exile the top card of your library. Until end of turn, you may play that card. 2-1. Prowess is in the core set. That's noteworthy. Two mana. I'm sorry. One and R for a 2-1 creature is obviously playable in Vintage. Young Pyromancer, you needn't look any further, but there have been some others in the past. So the body and the cost are there. Prowess, clearly relevant. And getting basically a free half draw, half permanence per se out of it when the turn you play it is nice. If this just said straight up draw a card, I think it would be a little easier to evaluate. But the sort of deck that's going to play this is the sort of deck that will have a low enough curve that it can reliably play the card that comes up be that a one or two mana creature like in a human's deck or a cheap spell like a a uh, box preordain gush that kind of thing it would be a bummer if you played this on turn three but you had to play your land first to cast it not on turn three on turn two Play it on turn two and flip up a land. That'd be a bummer, but you're not losing out on very much. The opportunity cost of that land being on off the top of your deck yeah. is actually still valuable.
1: Yeah, I think that's the central tension card. You know, it's interesting. Imagine if this card had just said two one for two draw a card. You know, yeah. it
0: would just Silvergill Adept.
1: Yeah, it would just be so much better, right? I mean, yeah. Yes. And so I, I think the tension for this card is it's a two mana two two three one, you know what I'm saying, mm-hmm. which means that you want to play it as soon as possible. But by playing it as soon as possible, you constrain your capacity to use the card that's on top. Yeah. So I think there's inherent and impossible tension in this card. I don't think it's playable.
0: And because of the red version of the Ophidian ability, meaning reveal and you can play it, sorry, exile and you can play it, it means you're limited in the value of drawing any kind of reactives card. A counter spell obviously is very weak to flip off of this, but so is any kind of removal spell. Even a lightning bolt, which is generally super functional, is, is probably at its least functional when you don't get to choose when it's when it comes up. Or worse, something like an abrupt decay, which is otherwise a great card, but if there's no target, you just you just wasted a good draw of an abrupt decay. So I'm with you, Steve. I don't think that this card is actually has a home in vintage. It's a good value card, and it could have a place in could could have a place in every other format. Standard, modern, legacy even. I mean, I'm not sure. Probably not legacy them. The predominant legacy decks don't want an unpredictable Conditional draw of a red creature like this when they're so heavily invested in young pyromancer. So zeros for Abbott for you and me. Yeah. Yeah. This next one I find fascinating. Fascinating. Jirapur Aether Grid. Oh, apologies on the pronunciation. Two R enchantment. Tap two untapped artifacts you control. Colon, Jirapur Aether Grid deals one damage to target creature or player. I think this card is is imminently playable, but it requires basically a whole new deck. <laughs> yeah. I love cards like that.
1: It's so versatile. I mean, the fact that you can hit creatures or players, it's defensive, it's like a moat, it's also a win condition.
0: Yeah. Yes, you're exactly right. Uh, it does so many different things. It protects you from the smaller creatures in the format just by virtue of having two, a pair of Moxin in play. This card is immediately threatening to Unflipped Delver or Young Pyromancer. It it takes four artifacts to really threaten a two-toughness creature like a Monastery Mentor. But, as I said before, I think the deck that can play this card would very powerfully feature artifacts. I think we're talking about a deck that might look a lot like The Answer, the Blue-Red Blood Moon Control decks, at least one possible iteration, with your Chalice of the Void, Uh, possibly Sensei's Divining Top. No, it's not very good with Chalice, but possibly Trinket Mage for uh, Engineered Explosives. Just a toolbox kind of approach or getting incremental value out of cheap artifacts and... A deck that's fully powered in terms of artifact accelerants, such that those accelerants help accelerate you into the mid-game and then form part of your win condition, your removal slash win condition. And this card also, assuming you have a couple of Moxen to go with it, this card is a win condition for Key Vault. So if if you're the sort of deck that can assemble Key Vault, most people scoop in general, but this card can be the thing that you say, I'm just going to kill you with this. And the versatility against modern creature decks is really strong. I mean, I I can't shake the notion that this card can just be taught... This is like a Planeswalker. It's like a red Planeswalker in that it's a permanent that's hard to remove because enchantments are... They're not impossible to remove, of course, but they're probably the lowest on the totem pole in terms of permanents that people can destroy, especially main deck. Most of the people aren't fighting Oath of Druids with enchant- with enchantment removal, for example. They're fighting it with containment priests and other things, so you've got an immediate advantage. That's one of the reasons why Blood Moon was so well-positioned in the answer decks is because aside from Abrupt Decay, most players aren't packing anything that can get rid of this. And you can answer Abrupt Decay in other ways. But also, this, this card can be immediately impactful is the other thing that's so great about it is, again, in a deck with a properly constructed mana base, you could play this and still have two artifacts of some type untapped. Maybe it's your turn one Chalice and an extra Mox. Maybe it's a top and a Mox. Maybe it's that Engineer Explosives you just play for zero for the value of it to get the one damage. Immediately knock off Young Pyromancer, unflip Delver, Dark Confidant, what have you. I just, I just really think the versatility of this card, combined with the fact that it plays off of the inherent artifact heaviness of even base blue decks in the format, all these things are pointing in the right direction for its playability.
1: Yeah, I, I think you're right in your assessment. I just can't shake the feeling that there's cards that are somewhat similar to this already, and I'm not exactly sure what they are.
0: Um, I think conceptually you're right, but there's never been one that's quite this efficient. The, th- the card that I immediately thought of when I saw this was Flame Fuselade, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is obviously has a whole history in Vintage and has functionality very similar to this and there have been a couple other cards throughout history like Kirin Negotiations or some such that allow you to tap permanents to deal damage Uh, but I think those cards have been either not flexible enough in that sometimes they couldn't hit creatures and players or they were too expensive as Kirin Negotiations is or they just didn't tap a resource that was easy enough to have around. Like, some of them would tap creatures. Creatures are not hard to have, per se, in Vintage, but they're not as robust or reliable as having a whole bunch of zero mana artifacts are in a controlish deck like this. So I think all of those things together means this card is well-positioned. I skipped right over the whole mana cost, of course. 2R, uh, I've already listed one of the examples in Blood Moon, which just made top 8 at the NYSE. What do you think about Jerper, Aether Grid?
1: like like i said i think the card is playable at least in, in principle um I like, I like its overall versatility and flexibility. You know, the capacity mm-hmm. to serve on defense, removing and picking off creatures, but as well serving as a as an end-stage win condition. Um, the, the casting cost is certainly efficient enough. I just wonder about the overall practicality. So, you know, wh- what does it mean in the early game? You know, how often will we be able to actually pick off something relevant? My main concern is that this card will probably never be able to remove the mentor, meaningfully. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but... Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, this card I think is is certainly in theory playable. I think the, the key question is how many artifacts in your deck should you have, and do you probably need in play to make this thing really really shine? You know, with two artifacts, you know, that you aren't using, you often do use most of your artifacts. You know, like mm-hmm. um, so, how many artifacts would you really need to get this thing going? What do you think?
0: My instincts tell me you're looking at a seat of the synod yeah. deck looking at a mana base like Steel City Vault or one of the old Turbo Tez kind of mana bases, uh, maybe more like Steel City because unfortunately Grim Monolith and Mana Vault don't play well with this card. Yeah. So uh, my instincts tell me you're looking upwards of 20 artifacts in such a deck with your Sensei's Divining Top and maybe Trinket Mage, maybe it has Main Deck Cage just to ramp up the synergy, something like that. I think there's a lot of ways you could go but I think it starts with Seed to the Cyanide. Is there any
1: infinite combo with this card that we haven't considered?
0: Well, the short answer is almost certainly yes, in that anything that profitably or at least indefinitely untaps two artifacts would do it, but the short answer is probably that any such combo is probably already good enough to win the game in some other shell. I'm thinking about, and this is not a great example, but Power Artifact on Grim Monolith yep. or, uh, or Basalt Monolith. Yeah. But those providing those are infinite mana combos and so they're far better at winning the game on their own than with this card. So there probably is, but I'm not aware of one that's just so benign that adding this to it finally produces the thing that <laughs> really does it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's just hard to imagine playing this card over like a Dak thing. Dak thing is is disruptive in a you know, in the sense that it steals artifacts, also draws cards, you know, yeah. The competition for space in modern vintage decks is incredible. Um, you just gotta pack enough synergy in to make this viable. I'm just like I said, I think in principle it's viable, but mm-hmm. I don't know if you can really reach a critical mass of utility quickly enough or efficiently enough to make this a really serious consideration in a deck like that.
0: I should have pointed out earlier that I think this card is is by itself is good against a lot of things, but workshops isn't actually one of them. <laughs> Because there's 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 only two one toughness creatures that workshops rely okay three that workshops reliably plays these Ver- one <laughs> is one is revoker right which turns this off so it's very ungood at answering revoker unless you play it after they've revoked something else which is reasonable that could happen the second uh, the second and third are the creatures from frobots um, porcelain legionnaire which this is legitimately good against but there's only a one to three of in that deck and then ravager which this again is not very good at because ravager could just pump itself out of the range of this so you got to get to four artifacts before this even has a little bit of relevance i think or reliably utility against workshops and that's at killing factories and even then yeah Factories can oh. pump themselves out of the range of the two. So you really have to have three damage out of this thing yeah. to be reliably good against workshops, and that's pretty unreasonable. Yeah, I think if, At-
1: if this card said tap two untapped artifacts, it does two damage to our creature player. We're, then <laughs> yeah. this becomes a much, much serious yeah. consideration. I mean, putting it in practical terms, you could play this, say, off land-land mocks. Let's say, see the synod dual-land mocks on turn two. Mm-hmm. You're, on turn 3, you're probably going to want to use those the, those mana sources for mana, and not this. You know, yep. One damage is likely not enough, unless you're like, picking off a Delver or a Pyromancer there. Maybe. And even then, yeah. maybe not. So, yeah, I just think this thing is just slightly too weak.
0: It has to be in addition to some other anti-creature technology. This has to be not replacing your swords or replacing your balance or, or whatever else, or your lightning bolts. It has to be a synergistic addition to those kind of things which goes back to why I said it probably needs to be a new kind of deck. It could go into something, you know, the blue-red answer-style decks, but those decks, they're not overwhelmed with artifacts, right? They've got Chalice of the Void. So Chalice of the Void's another example of synergy with this card. You're getting extra utility out of that, which is why I mentioned Cage earlier as well.
1: Well, the the problem with Chalice is that if you're playing Chalice at zero, you're going to be prevented from playing your late-game Oxen, which then becomes the, the power for the fuel for this
0: that is, of course, true, except those answer decks are designed to play Chalice at 1. So the 0... But if you're designed to play Chalice at 1, then your deck's not filled with Grafdigger's Cage and Sensei's Divining Tops either. So there's a synergy issues here with Chalice. <laughs> but the, the way you're going to get the most value out of this card is if you've got artifacts that don't tap for mana, Right. right? So if you've got your yes. Tops, your Cages, and your Chalices in your deck already, then you're getting extra benefit. To your point, you don't want to play this on two and then spend half of your third turn just doing one damage to something. P- p- tapping two out of the four mana, you've got right. that next turn. That's not a good not use. Yeah. So you want to be some kind of deck that's already putting non-mana artifacts into play. There aren't a lot of those decks around right now.
1: Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I guess if you can like combo with like Mind Over Matter or something...
0: <laughs> it's true that there could be some reasonable synergy that isn't played in vintage these days. Something that un- untaps artifacts for benefit. Uh, uh I don't know, a-, a candle opera type effect, although obviously candle opera itself is also a bad example, but still, maybe there's something untapped, maybe there's some clever deck builders will come up with something. I just can't shake the feeling that this card is synergistic with heavy artifact mana mana bases which in turn happen to be good against workshops that's the kind of connective tissue i'm seeing but as we've talked about it doesn't immediately it doesn't immediately graft into either turbo tez or the answer because there's dis built in so we'll see i think this is a card to keep your eye on longer term i'm gonna go zero on this one
1: well i'm right there with you Okay. You know what? I just it just occurred to me that um that card could actually have a specific cyborg use in a bomberman type deck um against against aggro decks. So you could imagine a deck that, like that that has generates a lot of artifacts that you may, you know, with trinket mages and things like that. True. You, you know, uh this card is actually fantastic against Malia type decks. So I just wanted to point that out True. this could be a you know, you could consider in, in a heavier artifact blue deck instead of a pyroclast or something like that.
0: Yep, agreed. Next up, Magmatic Insight. Red, Sorcery. As an additional cost to cast Magmatic Insight, discard a land card. Draw two cards. So, Steve, the magic of draw two cards is pretty alluring. This card is one red mana, which is obviously playable in Vintage. There are a number of examples of that. Drawing two cards is obviously playable in Vintage, vis-a-vis Gush, Night's Whisper, as we've already talked about, Artificer's Epiphany, that kind of thing. But this does it in the weakest kind of way, and the only reason I think people are drawn to this is the potential synergy with Gush, whereby you're putting lands back in your hand. And there's a couple other cards you could add to that equation that don't don't really see play, like days. But ultimately, this card isn't actually a very good value. (laughs) And you... And you're spending a mana, and a one mana means a lot in Vintage. Especially, especially, given that the discard is as an additional cost, and you get two for one if your opponent missteps it. I'm pretty pessimistic on this card. What do you think?
1: Well, I think in the first instance, you have to compare this with uh, Careful Study.
0: Faithless Looting. and yeah.
1: Faithless Looting. You know, Careful Study is a card that saw play in some formats for some time. And mm-hmm. But what's notable is that the designers may have thought that compelling you to discard only a land card maybe had been an upside. But in fact, a lot of Careful Study's value is because you get to choose what to put in your graveyard. And so you can put mm-hmm. a giant artifact creature, a deep analysis, something flashback, um, you know, situationally what's best. Um, you know, so when and when... Compared directly with careful study, in many ways, this is, this looks favorable. You know, you only have to discard one card, you get two cards, so it's card neutral. But I think holistically, the rigidity of this card, the lack of flexibility when it comes to deciding what to discard is, is a cost, um, as well as the fact that um, the situational inflexibility flexibility has to come into play so if you ha- open your hand with this careful study can be used to find a land to dig immediately in the like deck whereas this you know require if you don't have a land in play you can't in your hand you can't even play this card and and, mm-hmm. and i think the most of course like, as you alluded to the most damning element of this card is that the discard is part of the cost so with respect to careful study it's upon resolution your opponent will gladly <laughs> misstep this every time Mm -hmm. Um, I don't see I I see this though I just want to emphasize this I see this as a turn one card not a gush card not a card with gush so certainly in the late game it gets a lot of synergy with gush but I I think its value has to be evaluated what does this do on turn one
0: well that's fair in which case you're really speaking directly to deck construction right you can't expect to cast this card in a Delver shell at all On turn one, as for many reasons, which we've spoken of in, earlier in the show and well, last week. let will
1: be explicit about that. So, um, you know, if you... Delver decks have very light mana bases, including that, <laughs> you um, you can imagine a situation in which you have plenty of additional land in your opening hand, and you gladly discard one of them. But you can also imagine situations, and situations will arise in which you don't have the land. So, I mean, you, so I just think, you know, the, even if the don't have the land scenario happens, I don't know, 25% of the time, it could even be as low as 20% of the time. It's just too high of a cost. Kind of like Spoils mm-hmm. of the Vault. Spoils of the Vault is, is theoretical, is theoretically playable, but the fact that it just kills mm-hmm. you 8% of the time makes it unplayable.
0: <laughs> Good example, and this card is far less reliable than that. Of course, the downside isn't as high either, but so I feel like the only way you could make this card reliably in early game play is if you're playing a deck that was heavy on lands. Well, at least at least and moderately heavy, yeah. Well, beyond a certain threshold, granted. And there's just dis-synergy decks that want to do that are the sort of decks that want to play for having those lands in play. Because what if you add four lands to your deck in order to get past the threshold, and then you don't draw this Magmatic Insight? Yeah. <laughs> then you draw one of those extra lands instead, and then you've got two blanks in your opening hand, that you're both of which you were planning on discarding, and And so you're you're just not incented for the right kind of behavior with this card coming or going really, and I think that maybe the nail in the coffin is that vintage doesn't have a lot of context in which you can abuse having lands in your graveyard be, you could yeah. bake some synergy into this card if you're playing crucibles. Right. But the decks that play crucibles are the ones we spoke of that don't want to be doing playing that gambit of discarding lands.
1: Yeah, I mean to be completely fair to this card, you'd have to think exhaustively about decks that would be able to recur lands in some fashion. You know, sure. And, and you know, so you'd have to frame the question: what kind of deck would a have enough land to make this reliable? That's probably mm-hmm. you know, you no, know, it's sort of like the standard deviation model of statistics. You know, you get to, like, the 97% of the time, you know, but that's that's a very high, that's, you know, whatever, three standard deviations, that's a very high land count. It's probably unacceptable for any vintage deck, but that that exists now. So I don't think this could be fitted into something that that currently exists, but the question, Mm. again, to be fair to it is, where might this be placed? You know, in a turbo land-type deck, maybe? decks.
0: Yeah, the deck, the, the the characteristics you're describing to me suggest legacy lands. Yeah. A deck that's already that's high in land count and um, benefits from having lands in the discard pile and could recur them. Would would Life and could the recur them and would enjoy the the you know the moderate boost in cards that discard offers, given that they're playing to buy back that land that they discarded anyway.
1: Yeah, but really what you want to do is just you you want to dredge, so you'd be like replacing the draws with dredge.
0: <laughs> Oh, that's a good point. This card has some pretty good synergy with Deckmore Salvage, because you discard as part of the cost, and you can dredge immediately. That's no small thing. Yeah. I don't think uh, vintage dredge players are about to start including (laughs) this card in their deck by any stretch. But you're right. If you could bake enough synergies in and you're the sort of deck that met all those criteria, then and I think the closest thing we've got to that right now is, is Legacy Dread. I,
1: I had a dream one time that Bizarre Bagdad was scripted. If that were to ever happen, we would, we would evaluate this. <laughs>
0: well, I don't think any copies of this are going to show up in Vintage. How about you? All right. Next, Mana Gorger Hydra. What a great name. Gorging on the mana. 2G, Creature Hydra, Trample, make note, whenever a player casts a spell, put a plus one, plus one counter on Gorger Hydra, 1-1. One, one. Huh. So we've talked about vertical versus horizontal growth more times than I care to admit on this show. <laughs> is this card, I mean, have we reached the zenith of vertical growth in terms of design here? <laughs> it doesn't matter who's playing the spell, what kind of spell it is, what color it is, Whose turn it is, and it's got trample baked right, in, so half, you're going to get maximum value. It's got a half of
1: berserk built into it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yep, yeah. and it, it gets past the evasion problem that Query and Dryad, you know, famously had, and, and um, along with Kiln Fiend and several yeah. other examples. Let's
1: let's do a direct comparison to those. I mean, obviously Kiln Fiend and, Query and Dryad do not see into play Monastery mm-hmm. Mentor, but lots of grow creatures do. Monastery Mentor
0: is I think quite good. Um, yep. And a comparable mana cost.
1: Yeah, comparable mana cost and a comparable color. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) White and green occupy similar space in the vintage metagame in many ways. I'm sure there are many listeners who are screaming at us saying they don't. There are huge differences, (laughs) acknowledging that. But the point is that they're often a secondary secondary or tertiary color to blue. Um, Or at least to blue-red. So I think the, the first thing to point out here is that for one... so. Query and Dryad does not obviously grow when you play an artifact spell or a green spell. So that mm-hmm. gives this card a distinct advantage. And Trample is obviously a distinct advantage. The question is whether those, A, um, outweigh, are they, are they sufficiently good to make this card C play, whereas Query and Dryad, Dryad doesn't? And B, mm-hmm. does it make it even better than Query and Dryad, period, because of Query and Dryad's efficiency? Mm-hmm. So why don't we just do this? If this just costs the same as Query and Dryad, you know, how much better would this be than Query and Dryad?
0: It would be better in about a half a dozen different ways, I think. (laughs) And You just listed several of them. And in addition to that, of course, triggering off your opponent's spells. So it's clearly, in my opinion, it is clearly far superior to Dryad. Once it's in play. Once it's in play. I'm not
1: convinced it's better than Dryad, period, though. I mean, Dryad's casting cost is so significant. Um, And I don't know whether I'm trapped in the historical perspective, having played Dryad so many times, including winning Vintage Championship with it. Um, But being able to play Turn 1 Dryad is part of its value. the the gulf between 2 and 3 casting costs is illustrated by Pyromancer and Mentor. Um, Yeah. Yeah.
0: And a lot of the things we've said about Mentor during our review and since then about the kind of deck and deck construction that it promotes vis-a-vis mana (laughs) speak heavily toward this card as compared to and Dryad. You're you're definitely incentivized to have a bigger mana deck with this card as opposed to Dryad. Right. You'd still probably end up playing a lot of the same technologies, of course. Preordains and Gushes are still quite good with this card, but it's like Mentor, as you said. You'd be incentivized to play extra Moxin, Sensei's Divining Tops, those kind of things as well. Um, so... It would have a similar effect but then at which point though then we have to start addressing the whole vertical versus horizontal thing and talk about is there any way this could supplant mentor in the modern metagame so there's so many different angles of ana- analysis here
1: well you know vertical i there are cards that did, that grow. A lot of cards that grow and grow vertically in vintage including Monastery Mentor and in in uh Delver of Secrets, but there are mm-hmm. none that grow. There I can't think of a single card that's played in vintage right now that grows vertically with counters besides Mentor, sorry, with counters, period.
0: Mentor uh Arcbound Ravager.
1: Yeah, I don't that's true. That is, that is, that is, Uh. but, but you know what? Arcbound <laughs> Ravager has built within it this horizontal element. <laughs> yeah. It might be a VSL match with uh, Luis Scott Marcus yeah. illustrated,
0: quite. That, yeah. So Arcbound Ravager is straddling the line between horizontal and vertical <laughs> yeah. depth, of course.
1: It, it can only do one at a time, but it definitely can do both.
0: <laughs> but it does them both pretty well, yeah. too. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, anyway. Uh, what were you getting at though I,
1: I was i was getting at the fact that i think we are na- we've now reached a period where we shifted shifted largely to horizontal growth over vertical growth uh, yep. and i think this this um uh this card unfortunately falls on the wrong side of that historical cleavage
0: so i want to i, I agree with you i'd like to draw attention though to the fact that this triggers off your opponent's spells oh and i have oh, two questions okay. that are interrelated one is
1: I actually didn't (laughs) queue into that. There's
0: there's like, okay, there's like four different questions that are all keyed around that, but there's two categories to my thoughts. One is, what kind of deck or matchup maximizes that, and then by comparison, can you develop a deck that would punish your opponent for either side of their chosen action? Basically, if they choose inaction, punish them that way, and if they choose to play into it, punish them that way. Because I think that could be the, the deciding factor for this card, is if you can abuse that aspect, of it, punish your opponent with that extra little bit, then you might be onto something. I'm, here's an example: This card is super good if it's in play and you Hercules recall your workshop playing opponent, <laughs> because then they're damned if they're doing, if they do, and damned if they don't. Because playing, trying to address this thing makes it that much more powerful and puts it out of range. Things like duplicate notwithstanding. Uh, Similarly, if you are proactively playing spells that demand counters from your blue-playing opponents... So it's pretty nice to announce, say, Ancestral Recall with this card in play, because you're either getting your Ancestral or you're getting a free counter on it from their misstep or what have you. that kind of thing. I'm just wondering yeah. if there's a way you can construct a deck with this that really just squeezes every ounce of synergy out of it that way. It's going to be a blue-green deck at, at the base yeah. regardless, right? Yeah. I mean, that's just the way these things go these yeah. days. It could have a tertiary color, of course. <clears throat>
1: Wow, Um, I'll be honest. I didn't actually cue into the fact whenever any player. Um, Mm -hmm. I think my first reaction to that is that it's amazing what mana one mana buys you. you (laughs) Compared to Dryad, this guy gives you so much more value. um, As I said, the one But it also, you know, yeah. Um, I think the answer to one of your questions is, you know, obviously in in a deck. Against a matchup where the, your opponent plays a lot of spells, and not just a lot of spells like a storm deck, but a lot of interactive spells, you know, like a, like a, uh, a Delver mirror. This thing could really be enormous. You know, your opponent can't just not do anything, right? They have to play.
0: It is technically similar to Mystic Remora in that exactly way, in right. that it is abusing the high, the low land count decks that are popular these days. But
1: what I'm, what I'm getting at though is that, you're exactly right. Like your opponent has to play like a preordain. They can't just like mm-hmm. not play their preordain to, to right. develop their board. And so this will punish them for that. And every, every attempt they make to try and remove it, and then every attempt you make to protect it, just makes it that much larger. I think mm-hmm. this thing is probably just straight better than Kiln Fiend, which is amazing because Kiln Fiend has this geometric kind of growth. Um, <laughs> the, um, and, and I can certainly see a niche for it you know, over Queer and Dryad, but you know, again, those cards don't see play right now, so that doesn't, yeah. really, that doesn't really make the case for this card in any persuasive or compelling way.
0: Uh, I, I got something for you, though. Check this out. Mo- it's no secret that Monastery Mentor is pretty single-handedly responsible for the resurgence of white in the Vintage metagame right now.
1: Well, some people might take issue with that,
0: but... <laughs> <laughs> it's And it has seen a, a corollary uptick in certain cards like Swords to Plushers. Swords to Plushers has probably been the single biggest winner <laughs> in terms of going from very little play to forefront in the format because of Mentor. Containment Priest is also another good example. But my point is, is that maybe we're thinking about this card all wrong. Maybe this is the Monastery Mentor for the bug-color combination. Maybe this is how you get to play all those great bug cards, like Deathrite Shaman, Snapcaster Mage, plus Abrupt Decay, and still get some of the explosive value that you're getting out of Monastery Mentor. So one of the big weaknesses, of the reason I say that, one of the big weaknesses of this card in the metagame right now is clearly Swords to Plowshares, right? (laughs) If I'm playing Mentor versus this, all other things being equal, I want to be on the Mentor side, because I'm the one with Swords. Exactly. Uh, but you can r- kind of rebalance that equation if the ma- the Hydra person is the one with Abrupt Decay and the one with other things like um, well, the Engineered Plagues, the things that are good against the, the tokens, the Illness in the Ranks, etc. Maybe, just maybe, this is the more aggressive thing instead of Tassigur that those bug decks want now. Maybe those bug decks switch over to the Delver model, start adding some Gushes, and maybe all of a sudden you've got a Gush deck that has Abrupt Decay, which is a place that we don't really have in the metagame right now. Those
1: bug decks typically run wastelands, though. They're not gush decks. so you're, You'd have to not run wastelands. Uh, well,
0: I, you are correct in your observation, but I disagree with your conclusion. The original rug Delver decks were gush and wasteland decks. Were they not?
1: Not the ones that did well in the vintage Championship <laughs> two years ago. They didn't have any wastelands.
0: S- still, though, weren't, weren't early rug Delver decks decks that had like a strip and two wastes remember, and actually. gushes as well? I honestly don't remember your point that they would have to stop being Wasteland decks primarily is is totally correct. I don't think they would have to play zero Wastelands. I, I don't want to be that prescriptive about what we're predicting here. But my point is simply that this card could give that bug-style deck a more explosive finish than it has today, which could make... I mean, you know what card's really awesome to cast with this, in addition to all the other examples I've already given? Thoughtseize. <laughs> Thoughtseize plays perfectly with this card, for all the reasons we stated. You're punishing your opponent for inaction, and you're prompting them into action, see yeah,
1: you know I can't part of the the reason I'm struggling with this card as intriguing as it is is mm-hmm. is is enhanced as many enhancements as they've made to this card, subtle and obvious you know this sort mm. of generic idea of growth of vertical growth is that i can't see the the world through a lens in which monastery mentor does not exist and <laughs> therefore it's hard for me to evaluate where this can see play because i think the most important point is the one that you said earlier which is that head to head this card is not favorable against mentor mentor's mentor's horizontal growth means that even with trample the mentor is ahead because the horizontal growth combined with vertical growth of the tokens means that Mentor mm-hmm. will, will basically generate two, you know, roughly, there's some basic formula, but it's basically two power for every spell plus, you know, every other spell played before this, prior to it this turn, just about. Yeah. So, you know, that, that that's the problem, is that Mentor, well, mentor is a mixed is like the, it's the apogee of vertical and horizontal growth.
0: You're completely correct, but I would draw your attention to the top eight from the NYSE. No, no, you're right. And I would simply state that it is not overly complex and it has already been demonstrated that you can metagame a bug deck in a mentor environment and be successful. So that problem that you're that we're speaking of conceptually, I think I was I only really brought it up in the sense that Swords to Plowshares is such a universal trump to this card. It, Even more so than abrupt decay is a trump to mentor, right? Abrupt decaying mentor can sometimes result in there being one to three monks in play still. Yeah. And so it's not as good a solution. Plowing this thing, what that leaves in play is, is life points in your opponent's life pad. Yeah. That's all that leaves. So that's the, the strategic difficulty I was pointing to. But in the in the end, it is clearly possible to metagame a bug deck successfully. No, no, no
1: you're right. And there are a lot of possible synergies with this card that don't exist with yeah. Mentor. I mean, Toxic Deluge is, is case number one. Um, that's a good example. Yeah, I... I, I um, you're probably right. If this has a home and it's in that type of deck, I just don't... It's so hard to evaluate what's successful in Vintage in that respect right now. I mean, we're we're in this post-NYSE pre Vintage Champs period, and I, I mm-hmm. think there are a lot of things that are in flux right now. It's not clear what's going to happen.
0: But Think back to Growatog, though. Is this card Queer and Dryad, or is it Psychotog?
1: <laughs> well, it plays a bit of both, but it's...
0: It straddles the line between the yeah, two, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. I... I I think that there is a blue green splash X gush deck that this goes in, and I haven't seriously considered any other splash other than black. Yeah, red like, and white are still candidates. No, I think
1: your instincts <laughs> are right. I think this is a this goes in a this is a blue red a blue green black deck rather. This is a this yeah. is a bug deck.
0: I mean, it's clear it, Yogg. It's a bug deck with, with yeah, all you wanted, that that borrows heavily from the one that just top aided the NYSE.
1: Well, Yogg will is also insane card. <laughs>
0: granted, granted. <laughs> The card is is not especially good against workshops because it would in the bug style deck it would be the most expensive card in your curve and the one that's the least good against basically everything <laughs> they're doing. Exactly. right there's a reason why yeah. trigon predator has earned a spot in bug decks historically and it's because if you can reach that zenith of mana against shops the payoff is huge the payoff for this card is tactically weak against a deck that's trying to restrict your ability to cast spells right if you're buried under tangle and spheres your opponent is the one who gets to choose basically how big this thing is going to be and that seems like a, a bad idea now as I've said before in a number of different examples, if you can disincentivize your opponent from playing spells, then there's some value to be gained. But I really genuinely think this is the sort of thing that might have to just be boarded out against shops.:
1: Yeah, it's hard to see this actually like making the big difference in the shops matchup and, you know like it's hard enough to resolve a trigon predator.
0: Yeah, and things like monastery and mentor are a whole different ball of wax against shops because of their lateral growth. That's one of the reasons, as we've said many times, why lateral growth is so key in vintage these days. I think generating permanence is huge. But hey, we'll see. I mean, similar to meta against mentor, it's not it's not too difficult to meta game about de- bug deck against shops these days either. Maybe this card comes out in that particular matchup, or maybe you have a sideboard plan that's a little bit custom. That makes this thing easier to cast and better when you do, owing to my example of Hercule's Recall earlier.
1: Yeah, I, I just I just can't shake the feeling if you build this an awesome blue blue green black deck with this, it could be good. I don't know, but I, I feel like it'd be weaker than the blue red Delver and weaker than Mel- Mentor. That's just my feeling.
0: Well, there's a reason it doesn't exist so far. Basically, uh, uh, there's no bug gush deck in the format at the moment, and you you might be you might be observing that more than anything else yeah, at might this be point, and that, that's clearly true. Biased
1: by that fact, yeah. All
0: right, let's let's put our money where our mouth is. I hmm. you so want to say non-zero. I, I really do, but the last thing you said right there is pretty damning. I don't think that the existence of this card is enough to make that bug gush style archetype work in vintage. Uh, this is not the thing that that deck I, is I missing. Agree. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna go with zero.
1: Well, I can't, I can't uh, go less than that. So,
0: <laughs> as said a number of times before, I will be pleasantly surprised if I'm wrong on this front because I, I like I seeing new and great I things. I would love
1: to be wrong here. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not trying to be pessimistic. I just, nope. I'm just trying to be realistic.
0: All right. Here's another one that we're going to have similar feelings on, I think. Hangerback Walker. Oh, X. What a name. Art, I know, right? Artifact creature construct. Hangerback Walker enters the battlefield with X plus one counters on it. When Hangerback Walker dies, put a 1-1 colorless thopter artifact creature token with flying onto the battlefield for each plus one plus one counter on Hangerback Walker. One tap, colon, put a plus one, plus one counter on Hangerback Walker. It's zero, zero. You
1: said that pretty quickly, so let me just go through with salient features again. There's a lot going on cost here. Cost XX, which means that an X is equal to what?
0: The number of counters it comes into play with.
1: <laughs> which is equal to what? XX. <laughs> X. That,
0: well, that's it. Yeah. So, so for two mana, you get a one, one. For four mana, you get a two, two. For go. six mana, you that's get a three, what I was three.
1: Yeah, there you go. So for 2 mana, you get a one one. mana, you get a 2 mana, you get a 3-3. That's the key. Uh, And so on. Um, And then you can basically pay a mana and tap it to put a plus-1, plus-1 counter on it.
0: On defense, basically, yeah.
1: The critical point is that when it dies, you get a token with flying for each counter that was on it.
0: I think it is mathematically very closely related to Arcbound Ravager in that sense. It's like modular, except you don't get plus-1 counters, you get thopters. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And it doesn't, and it can't sacrifice itself, which is obviously key. Right,
1: right, and it's in the countering the you have to pay mana and tap, so it's not like yeah. you can just like tap my academy, add five counters. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right,
0: you're right. I think let's talk the basics. Okay, mana cost, right? Does two mana for a one-one creature with some abilities see play in vintage? Clearly, it does. We already mentioned Arcbound Ravager, right? So on paper, it compares. With Arcbound Ravager, that seemed, that seemed um, like
1: a very flawed comparison.
0: <laughs> I don't agree. I don't agree, and I'll tell you why. Because Arcbound Ravager, while it has it has definite flexibility in terms of taking what is a, a, let's say a spent resource, like extra mocks and that kind of thing, and turning them into vertical growth, which, as we've discussed earlier with with the Mana Gorger Hydra, Ravager's vertical growth. Also, kind of doubles as horizontal growth in a sense, so that there's clearly a different value there. But Hangerback Walker has vertical growth that becomes horizontal growth upon death, and I don't think we should over—I don't think we should glaze over how valuable that could be. Also, it has incredible synergy with Arcbound Ravager.
1: Okay, you, you, I don't think you fully answered my objection to the. I think what you said was the reason. I mean, you pointed out that Arcbound Ravager has a lot of value, which I totally mm-hmm. agree with. But the reason we look at casting costs and power and toughness is to see whether something is at a baseline worth it in vintage. Does it have enough value at that cost? And what I think is important is that two mana for a one-one is not playable in vintage. We don't. We don't. We're not. Pay- when we pay the two mana for Ravager, we're not paying for his one-one body. I mean, it could mm-hmm. be a zero-one, and we would still play it would still be playable. So. <laughs> You know, I don't. I, I don't think that. We, I don't yeah. think we're paying. We're, the money isn't going to his sexy body, right? It's. It's.
0: Well, it, the answer is the same for both of these creatures. Then, in both cases, you're paying for its abilities and not its baseline. Right. So the question and, is, is: Are the abilities, yeah.
1: you know, viable enough to justify? You know.
0: And I would say that there's built-in synergy with what workshops are trying to do in vintage here. At certain workshop decks, mostly for robots, but. Any kind of artifact that gives you value upon destruction is worth considering in Vintage, I think. This is not a worm coil engine, per se but it's going to have similar value in certain contexts. And it's what's also worth pointing out that in a lot of formats, in almost any other format, in fact, this is a 1-1 for 2, right? Except for late game draws. Vintage is not like that. I think the baseline for this card is this is 2-2 for 4, and it goes up from there. There are plenty of scenarios where you're going to pay 8 mana for this in Vintage. Plenty of scenarios. And part of the reason is is because this is not a good turn 1 play in Vintage except for really unusual circumstances. This is a turn two through four creature in in workshops, if it's anything. Or it's a turn one play in addition to something else. It's workshop mocks... Thorn, Hangerback Walker, just like Ravager does. It's that kind of play, or it's the late game 3-3 or 4-4 after you've already disrupted the board and you need to finish the game. And I would say that at 6 mana for a 3-3, now we're in the territory of, I need to answer this with two different cards, right? Now we're in the territory of, okay, uh, you know, I natures claim it, I abrupt decay it, but uh, it's gonna take this abrupt decay plus something else because even after flashback, I'm still facing down 2 one ones. I mean... There's inherent synergy here with some of the challenges that workshops are facing in vintage vis-a-vis removal, and there's inherent synergy with some of the things that Frobots are doing vis-a-vis plus one plus one counters. But it is unlike Ravager, even it is pretty weak on the face. It can't do, it can't generate any of this advantage by itself. It's it's reliant on interactions. There are several, but it's still reliant on <laughs> them. And the best thing it does is sit back on defense and pump itself, which is frequently not good enough, <laughs> but I would point out... Hold on. <laughs> but I would point out that there are some matchups where that will be highly you know, relevant. The Workshop Mirror, yeah. for example. No,
1: you're right, you're right. I just, I just
0: And think... against something silly like Landstill, this is a huge turn one threat because it overwhelms anything. It, it completely disables them from playing the card standstill. You
1: no, know, I think it's so funny that you said the best thing this thing does is, is fit back and pump itself, you know. It's like it's just <laughs> something awful. That's something what I mean awful that, about that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> at, at purely I mean, this card face is like value, the
1: laziest card in Magic. This is.
0: Just... Yeah, but I mean, you can say that about a lot of things. The only thing Mox Ruby does is sit back and generate one red mana every turn, right? <laughs> yeah. No card exists yeah, in a vacuum. This
1: card just, I mean, sits back, taps itself, and adds counters to its body. No, no, Look-
0: I. Look at what this does when you're under a tangle wire. You're under your own tangle wire and you got nothing better to do. On your upkeep, put another counter on it. Bam. Look what it does with a smokestack. You sack some other permanents, wait a turn or two, putting counters on this. Then the turn you sack this, it turns into two or three more permanents. Look what it does with Arcbound Ravager, we've already said. Look what it does against Standstill, I've already said. Look what it does in the Workshop Mirror. You, if you can construct the game state such that this thing lives out there for a couple of turns, then all of a sudden you've got a 4-4 four, four, or a 5-5 and it's taken down opposing Forge look Masters. Look what this
1: thing does against Backface. Gets destroyed. You get destroyed. I mean, this thing, this thing is that uh, This yep. is the worst. This is the workshop player's worst nightmare for Dak fade. I mean, well,
0: it's not the worst one. Look, the worst one is Worm Coil Engine. This, this <laughs> but, isn't
1: that far off, but yeah, it's
0: it's pretty far off. It's, it's, look, if if they take. <laughs> If they are spending their deck fading on your hanger back walker something else has gone horribly wrong all right <laughs> this is obviously going to be pretty low on the totem pole in terms of targets for deck well
1: i think the point is that you, and the only reason is because you don't there's no there's no hurry i mean you can take this at your leisure you know i mean this is this is the kind of card unlike part of we, ravager's value is it
0: we should not be evaluating cards for potential workshop play based on how bad it is if you get decked <laughs> when the answer to that, hold on. When right. the answer to that, in this case, is it's not very bad. No, <laughs> okay. No, but it's, workshops already plays tons of cards that are horrible to get decked. This one is not very bad. This is a synergy card that if your opponent uses their DAC on it, you're going to be like, oh, okay.
1: Well, allow me to complete a thought here. So. <laughs> okay. I do think that um, you have to look at how in Arcbound Ravager's um, re- resilience and capacity to deal with re- the kinds of removal that are in the format. And, um, you know, the fact that it is really hard to DAC a Ravager, you know, like if your opponent activates DAC on Ravager, you can just immediately respond. If they
0: try and plow it, you can immediately respond. If they activate DAK on anything it, while you have Ravager,
1: yeah, exactly. At activate DAK on anything, you can respond. And I, I don't think it's a, you know Ravager has seen an increase in play, and, and I think there are multiple reasons for that. I think there are, two, but there are two key reasons. One, mm-hmm. let's I'll just I'll say two key. There are there are others that are important, but probably not key. The first is the existence of DAK fade. That that is an anti DAK fade tactic. The second is, I think it's fantastic in the Workshop Mirror. And the Workshop Mirror is probably more important. You know, as the workshops become better, it becomes increasingly important. If there's a third, yep. the tempo is is right now quite salient in workshop strategies. And so Ravager gives you a big tempo play. Uh, it, of course, Ravager is also quite nice with Triskelion. It's another, <laughs> another nice bonus. But, you know, yeah. I think... Um, I think that you have framed the right question and your framing is, you know, first of all, what does this do in the workshop mirror? Actually, so let's let's actually let's yeah, first of all, what does this do in the workshop mirror? And the second question is, if this is great in the workshop mirror, the second question becomes can workshops afford to play, you know, this card over other cards that are great in the workshop mirror? Another way of looking at that question is right now, how many cards do workshop decks in the cyborg generally or main deck devote for the mirror? Primarily for the mirror. You know, I don't think mm-hmm. there are many. I think workshop decks generally don't devote cards for them for the mirror. What they do is they use cards that are you know, in the matrix of decision making, and this is typically actually its highest level, I think, how decisions are made in vintage from a design perspective is you, you don't necessarily pick matchups in a sort of cardinal order, right? You don't start with the most important matchup, the second, fourth, third, portion board, and then you look at the card that's the best in the top matchup and select that card. Rather, the way that cards are selected for design and vintage is you look holistically at the range of matchups and you look at the the range of possible inclusions and then you select the card so, for example, if a card is fantastic in the top matchup, but but terrible in the second and third and fourth matchups, you probably wouldn't pick that card over a card that's, you know, the best against the second, third, and fourth matchup and useful in the first matchup.
0: What? That's why people don't play more than one Hercules Recall, basically. Well... You don't put a second Hercules Recall on your deck these days, even though it is amazing against workshops. You put Dak Faden in.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's probably probably right. I mean, Herkel's also got a lot of value for being able to bounce a blight seal. But Dak no just <laughs> not really, anymore. Yeah, not <laughs> anymore. I mean to some extent, you know, but uh not not nearly as much <laughs> as it is too. Um the uh, I think the critical question is, and just to frame it as clearly as possible, to what extent the workshop decks either select cards in the main board or include cards in their sideboard for the workshop mirror, either exclusively or largely? So, probably not. My guess, that's the first question, but my guess is that the answer to the the question, at least the subpart of the question asking exclusively, is probably close to zero. The workshop decks probably include almost no cards that are dedicated exclusively for the workshop mirror. The second question then becomes, if they do include cards, either in the main deck, or in the sideboard, either exclusively or largely for the, or primarily, let's say, for the mirror. And those are three different things actually. Exclusively, largely, and primarily are the things. (laughs) We don't need to get the subtle these between all of them, but um the question then becomes is this better than the, an alternative card right because if this is going to see play we have to be convinced of the, the answer to the first question is yes and the answer to the second question is either yes or comparable to right uh,
0: in that framing i would agree with you but i disagree with your framing
1: all right why
0: because I think you've you've gone a little whole hog on my notion that this is a, a good card in the Workshop Mirror, and I think this falls far more into the whole Matrix concept that you alluded to, and not as a silver bullet for the Workshop Mirror. My point was that this card has utility in multiple matchups. I was making the opposite point. The discard has very diverse synergies, and it works well with a lot of different things that Workshops are either trying to do or trying to fight against. I would not say that this is a silver bullet for the workshop matchup. My point was simply that you can structure games in the mirror where this will be a huge benefit. Sit back, continue to grow, and if they ever get rid of it, you get a big army of 1-1s. That was the point there. Except
1: most of the removal is now plowing down, so you don't get an army of 1-1s
0: except that a lot of the removal in the Workshop Mirror happens in combat. And and if we're talking about Frobots, the synergy of your own removal is also part of it. So yeah, this is bad against a DAC, but we're not talking about DAC. This is bad against a Duplicant. I'll grant you it's quite bad against your opponent's duplicate. But yeah, pretty much everything of- in the Workshop Mirror is bad against your opponent's duplicate. <laughs> I yep. mean, that's not overstating things. My point is that for two mana on turn one, you're getting a long-term resource... And in contrast to Ravager, Ravager is turning, Ravager is translating a permanent into another kind of permanent. It's translating a, an artifact into a +1/+1 plus one, plus one counter. Now you can debate whether or not a +1/+1 plus one, plus one counter is a permanent or not. It's, it's technically not, but you're getting one permanent resource for another. Hangerback Walker is making the opposite kind of trade. You're trading up. You're trading mana into 1-1 Thopters in the long run. So you're you're generating card advantage with this card every time you activate it. And unlike Arcbound Ravager, the resource is not ephemeral. It's a permanent resource. Aside from duplicants, which we've already discussed, if your opponent deals with this thing, you're getting card advantage. Now, it's not impressive card advantage at a single Thopter. I'll grant you that. It's not even impressive at two or three thopters, really, but it, it's all a part of a package. What happened to get you to the point where this thing was 3-3, three, three, and maybe the, your opponent was forced to trade it with a lodestone golem? I mean, that's the kind of scenario where you're getting incremental value, because it's in addition to all the other things you're doing in the, in the matchup. A
1: lovely story, except for yeah. one thing. Okay. You will never play this in most matchups on turn one.
0: Well, sure you will if you've got a plan for your next three turns in your hand. If your curve is two, three, four, five, six, yeah, you play this on turn one. If your plan is to lock up the ground with Tangle Wire and do absolutely nothing on turn two, then heck yes, you play this for two mana on turn I, one. Play, if it's part of yeah. Thorn, if you've got Workshop Mox, Thorn, Hangerback Walker, yeah, you I play this on turn. I see you playing one. this
1: on turn one in a Workshop Mirror, but in in most matchups, you have to play a lock piece.
0: Well, isn't that? what you're saying isn't that in favor of this card isn't that a feature of this card that you get to choose what turn you play it on and it gets better the later you totally wait?
1: agree there I, I like the fact okay. that this card scales over time i think that's and, an advantage
0: and you get very and you get very real benefit it's not like uh i can't think of a good example of a past creature green has a zillion hydras that are you know x and a green or some amount of green where you, they just get bigger right this is way better than that you're buying plus one plus one counter and a thopter every time you put two more mana into this thing that's a much better value that's like mana gorger versus query and dryad in terms of value if, as a comparison and i also don't want to go too deep on comparing this thing to arcbound ravager you put a fair bit of emphasis on the fact that ravager is better for a bunch of reasons that are completely correct reasons why ravager is seeing play this these days I don't promote you cutting Ravager for this card. I promote you cutting things like Porcelain Legionnaire for this card. That's the kind of space this card is competing with. Smaller, Other smaller creatures where this is getting much better synergy with Ravager and other things you're trying to do, and also protects you against removal in ways that Porcelain Legionnaire doesn't. Porcelain Legionnaire is just a a sweaty beater. It's just there for the fact that it has First Strike. It's pretty good against the Lodestone Golem and almost every other creature in Vintage. This thing has more synergy with some of the permanent-based card advantage things that workshop decks have traditionally tried to do. I think you can toe the line between Frobots and Martello or Frobots and Espresso with this card, and I think it, it plays both roles. One of the things we've talked about that are really great features in Vintage cards and decks is being able to shift gears. This is one of those cards that lets you shift gears. This is one of those cards that lets you go from I'm attacking and blocking to all of a sudden I've just generated three permanents now and and you can't get out from under my Tanglewire plus Smokestack. It's that kind of card. All right. It's not over it's not oppressively powerful though at any of those things. Right. It's just a role player.
1: So do you think this will see play in and in, in, do you think this could see play in aggro workshop decks?
0: Yes. I think this could see play alongside Arcbon Ravager and the way I mentioned earlier, in place of the less uh the less utilitarian uh cards like Porcelain Legionnaire. Also, look how good this is with just Martello. Look how good this is with Forge Master. You play this in early turns. You hit him a couple of times. You get your Forge Master out. The turn you go to activate the Forge Master, you put an extra counter on this thing. Boom, I sack this, yeah, I get two Thopters. Yeah. I mean, I'm gaining... Workshops really wants cards that let you grow and, and gain advantage on the board while also activating a Forge Master. That's some super good synergy. I mean, yes, it's only 1-1 Flyers, but that can be the difference. And, and in the popular Frobots builds with all the equipment, this gives you easier access to flyers, period, evasion, right? So you plunk this down, and maybe you feed the counter over to your Ravager, you're not losing any, you're gaining power, right? You get the counter and the thopter, so you've increased plus one, plus one power, but now you've got a flyer to swing over with your sword of fire and ice. That's huge in the mirror, right? (laughs) Just being able to hit with your sword of fire and ice, period, in the mirror. (laughs) I mean, it's... There's got to be plenty of games in the mirror where one or both players have equipment and nobody can get through because ground is filled with giant sweaty monsters. I just think there's so much synergy with what workshops are trying to do and trying to fight here. It's hard to ignore. I wouldn't have thought that Arcbound Ravager could see any play if you'd asked me a year ago. I would have said, are you kidding? No. Ago, the, Arcbound
1: it, Ravager saw play in Vintage like six years ago.
0: Was no, it- no, it has. My point is, about a year ago now, there was no Ravager in Vintage. There was that... That occasional affinity build that would spike a couple of tournaments, yeah. It did. It, this is more than a year ago now I'm thinking about. But my point is simply that it's not obvious that Arcbound Ravager is just a given in Vintage at any given point, right? That's kind of a recent metagame adjustment. And if you told me that Porcelain Legionnaire, even six months ago, if you told me Porcelain Legionnaire was going to be saying play, I would have said, forget about it, you're crazy. A 3-1, it dies to every single possible removal spell in the format? No way. The point is, metagames adjust, weird cards start to see play. This card is not very weird from a workshop perspective. I think it would be easier to evaluate if you took off any one of its abilities. If it was just a 1-1 a one, one for 2, it would be easier to evaluate and say, oh, well, it just does that. If you took off its ability to pump itself, you would say, oh, okay, it's just this, variable size, that's cool. If you took off the Sacking for Thopters, it wouldn't be playable. <laughs> but my point is, is, I think the flexibility of this card is making it even harder to evaluate. If it was a simpler version of itself, it would be easier to say, oh, yeah, that kind of fits here. But it can do so many different things It rewards skill in deck building and play that I think clever people are going to find a place for this.
1: All right, put your money where your mouth is.
0: Yeah, I'm going to say I'm going to say 2.
1: <laughs>
0: Look, you laugh, but how much Frobots is actually seeing top 8 appearances, right? It's not very much. And I don't think every Frobots player immediately starts packing this. So, I'm talking about a subset of of people who play Frobots, oh, and maybe a couple of Martellos. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean to hear you talk about the thing you, you know, you wouldn't light it on fire to save the butane. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> no no i i just think that um i just think that rockbound ravager is is sucking too is going to suck too much out of the oxygen out of the you know the air to, to make this thing useful
0: i, I there's not to say what do you think about my comparison to porcelain Legionnaire, though
1: no i think that's i think that's really well put i i i just i i don't have enough of an understanding of the role that porcelain Legionnaire plays in the form it yeah. really is a little bit mystifying cause, um that's fair. It's a little enigmatic. Yeah, I mean, so I'd have to think about a little bit more about that. Um, you know, personally, Legionnaire, obviously is a, is a. It, it functionally costs two mana, right? Yeah. And it's a three-one.
0: Two mana and two life.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, it's two mana, three-one first strike so it, it trumps blocks. yeah it trumps all the little, little tokens um, it can trade with the in the mirror that you mentioned um, it's, it's a fast tempo play so I, I think the mm-hmm. three damage actually makes a big difference and this thing I mean you know <laughs> so you put this thing in play you know what I'll, I'll also make this point this is not a trivial point but the one mana activation to make this thing grow is actually not quite as simple as listeners may just think like you actually mm-hmm. watch a lot of workshop match there's not a like a, a lot of one colorist that doesn't come from workshops floating around out there and and when there is it's often from an ancient tomb or something like that it's just it's just not really out there in large quantities like you would think so it's true you know i just don't feel like i feel like this thing has a lot of i really want to be objective about it so i don't want to overly overly pessimistic but i just want to point out that this activation thing you know it's not just as simple as sitting back laying back and growing right it's it's this thing you're probably not going to be activating at every turn
0: that's completely i completely agree it's not like you attack with mishra's factory every turn in those Uh, decks i mean you have to plan your mana accordingly yeah
1: um I, 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 like I said, I don't really understand Porcelain Legionnaire enough. And therefore I may, I'm really hesitant to make a strong, confident prediction here. Um, Mm-hmm. But my my instinct in, in my—I I view Vintage and Magic in general much more tempo-oriented than I think a lot of players do, especially Vintage players who have been schooled in the Weissman school. Um, I think mm-hmm. tempo matters a lot more than people give it credit for. And uh, I, I think that, that that power differential makes a huge difference here. I see this card is just too slow. So— um, I think it has a lot of upsides, has a lot of nice qualities. There's no doubt it's not strictly inferior to Ravager by any means, right? That its growth mm-hmm. is, doesn't require you to lose spheres. It's, um, you know, it, it, when it, it has more synergy than Ravager with uh, with Coldotha. You know, it, it's not as good, per se, with Trike as Ravager, mm-hmm. but it's certainly not bad.
0: Um, it has inevitability once it's in play in a way that's more reliable than Ravager's is.
1: yeah, yeah. Um, this card is actually nice synergy with Ravager, to be honest. Um,
0: That's been part of my whole point: is that it goes next to Ravager yeah, no, I, and amplifies the synergy. I hear each.
1: you. I hear you. I hear you. Um, I, I, um, I'm just trying to wrap a bow on it, right? I'm trying to get
0: my head around <laughs> this. My head around this, and. Um, the, If I had to summarize, I would say it might just not be powerful enough at all the things it does. Yeah,
1: Yeah, I think that's it. I think that's it. I think from a holistic perspective, it does a lot, but I think it's just a little bit slow. And I think that the Porcelain Legionnaire gets value from its flexibility, its capacity to do different things in different kinds of matchups and subtle different kinds of ways. Um, Yeah. I like the way this card scales. That's nice. I mean, this could be, you know, so you could have a game with like three workshops and this thing comes down 10 mana, 5 5, you know, the late game, <laughs> which would be great, yeah. right? I mean.
0: All right. So what's your ultimate disposition on Hangerback Walker? Is it zero? I'm going to go one. <laughs> oh, he's trying to cold shot me. <laughs> in the gap between zero and two. After all of your posturing, <laughs> you think there's going to be exactly one instance of Hangerback Walker. <laughs> Pretty gutsy call. All right, let's finish with one Orbs of Warding. Five mana. Artifact, you have Hexproof. If a creature would deal damage to you, prevent one of that damage. What we've got here is we've got an, a Witchbane orb with Upside, Right.
1: Witchbane Orb just says you have Hexproof, but doesn't it say something else?
0: It destroys all curses attached to you. (laughs) Yeah. So... Yeah, we got. We're paying one more mana to upgrade your Witchbane Orb to a kind of Urza's Armor effect here. If a creature will deal damage to you, prevent one of it, which is no slouch. It's pretty good in Vintage against one young Pyromancer, which is a bit of a bugaboo for shops. But preventing the damage from the elementals is not really the way that shops needs to fight that effect. <laughs> so anyway, let's talk mana cost. Right, five colorless mana, clearly playable in Vintage. Yep. The title card of Martello Shops costs five colorless mana. Mm-hmm. But paying five colorless mana for a non-creature artifact is actually a little bit unheard of in this day and age. When's the last card that cost more than Smokestack that didn't have power and toughness? Oh, I know. Staff of Nin is, is occasionally played yeah. these days. So yeah. it's What's an, but that one, okay. What's another one? Um, Me- memory Jar. Yeah. Okay. So card clearly fits within the spectrum of playable mana costs and permanent types in Vintage. And the whole Witchbane, Witchbane Orb is clearly played. It's not it's not a staple per se, but it still appears occasionally in, in Workshop sideboards. Good answer to Hercules Recall and Oath of Druids and a few other things. Tendrils of Agony. Do you think you can afford to upgrade your Witchbane Orb for one more mana to get a little bit more upside against creatures in Vintage?
1: That is such a tough question. I yeah. just don't know. I haven't played Workshops enough recently to be able to assess that question, but my suspicion is probably not.
0: so let's tackle the question from a specific angle and that is which brain orb is for for certain matchups it's for your oath specifically probably for your hercules recall matchups and for your tendrils based matchups right yep probably not for anything else you wouldn't bring it in against dredge to stop cobble therapy right right wouldn't bring it in against Bug to stop thought Thoughtseize. Nothing like that. It's for Oath, Tendrils, and Hercule. Yep. Does adding the creature damage prevention mean that you would bring in this card against other matchups? Would you bring it in against Delver? Almost certainly, right? I mean, if it's for anything, it's for Delver, don't you think? I'm thinking... Back to your point about matrix selection for cards in Vintage. Yeah, exactly. This seems to illustrate that point pretty well. Yeah, it
1: does. Oh, God. These are really some brain busters. Um, I'm trying to think of something intelligent, not just
0: intelligent. Sorry, I was just laughing, thinking <laughs> if you compare Magic Origins to Alpha, they, <laughs> they've instituted a whole bunch of mystifiers.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so here, here's how I'm going to assess. I, I think there's two ways of, of, of sort of thinking about it, right? I mean, so we talked in the little matrix that we talked about. We talked about, you know, the how you select sideboard cards. There's a reason mm-hmm. very few people use main Orb. I, I haven't looked at the data. Maybe you have it right now. But main Orb is quite
0: infrequently
1: infrequ- played. Yes,
0: it's pretty far down and, the list from comics. And when comics, people or or play like it, it,
1: I think they play it for a very specific reason. So they run, like, their graph yeah. Diggers cages for Oath and for Dredge. And then they add... The Witchbane Orb is an additional anti oath tactic. They'll shore them up, like to give them a one of, like for their Forge Master, or whatever, right? So um, yeah. the question is, is this being Would this be used as a like one of is to supplement your cages and or find with Coldotha, um, or mm-hmm. is this card going to be used sort of in a holistic way, right? Like the, the other card. My my guess is that it's probably. Let's just say to make it simple that people use it to supplement their cages. In which case I think this is really being pinpointed for one matchup, which beta warp is used for one matchup, which is oath. In the Oath matchup, speed is of time is of the essence, right? Yeah. Like if you your opponent goes turn one mox Land O or Orch- uh, mox orchard oath, you have to have that you know, the card deployed as quickly as possible. And mm-hmm. it strikes
0: and the difference between 4 and 5 is kind of like the difference between 1 and 2 in other decks.
1: Yeah, exactly right. I think that's right. So, you said the difference between 1 and 5?
0: No, the difference between 4 and 5 in workshops is very similar to the difference between 1 and 2 in other yeah. decks.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: it's it's not it's not a great, it's not a one-for-one one analogy, but the point is, is that you're paying a significant price by adding 1 between 4 and 5, It's kind of like relying on uh, Containment Priest against Dredge. You have to get a specific mana draw in order for it to be good enough.
1: Yeah, yeah. On the other hand, if it's the combination of Kaldotha and, you know, another card against Oath and it's only like a singleton... Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that one mana is as significant. I think that the capacity to bring this in another matchups may justify the additional mana cost. You know, like the capacity just like just cold. I mean, I don't know if you could activate Coldotha against like a, a token swarm. Is this the mm-hmm. worst thing to get, or is there something just obviously better?
0: <laughs> well, if you're talking token swarm, so we're talking about Pyromancer here. Yeah. I would say you're probably getting Steel Hellkite a lot of times to address that Swarm. Yeah, but let's... Okay. But in that matchup, you're also probably getting Sundering Titan a fair bit of time. Yeah, but
1: I'm just envisioning, you know, like, they've got a little tempo advantage, you manage to squeeze through your Forge Master, you know, you can activate it once and you're about to be Alpha Strike. you know, probably this card's as good as any.
0: Um. Well, I think it's second on the list to a couple other cards in most of those cases. I think if you've got Steel Hellcut, you're getting that. If you've got Wormcoil Engine, that's a better answer to Pyromancer.
1: Wormcoil Engine, I'm persuaded on. That's fine.
0: Oh, um, you're talking specifically on defense. Yeah, like you. You, you mean during result- combat activation? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, uh, in that in that specific scenario, yeah, this card jumps pretty high up in the list. W- Wormcoil might be slightly better. It's probably that better as Wormcoil. That a scenario
1: of an example because it's unlikely that you would have your Kodotha active and you wouldn't use it as soon as he turns on.
0: That's why I mentioned Sundering Titan. Is a lot of times you're being more proactive than that. But your point is well made. In a deck where sideboard begins four Graftiggers Cage and one or two Witchbane Orbs, then the marginal utility of adding a Manateer Witchbane Orb is, is diluted because that's not your answer to Oath or Dredge. Right. You know, it's it's splash hate, and splash being splashier is always kind of a useful thing. Mm-hmm. But as you've just put it, I'm not convinced this card's actually even worth bringing in against Delvino. Yeah. Though. yeah. <laughs> I mean, is it is it even worth the slot? to just have extra time against a swarm of elementals?
1: How much time does it actually buy you? Like, how much time does it actually buy you? How many turns? So you're going to turn one Delver and let's say like a turn two Pyromancer and they generate a couple tokens. How many turns does this thing actually save you?
0: Well, you're going... In that scenario, assuming the Delver flips, you've got, let's say, three from the Delver, two from the Pyromancer, and two tokens. That's seven power. It turns that seven power into two, into three. Yeah. That's a pretty big difference. That's more than a doubling. Yeah, <laughs> and that's with their best card, a flipped Delver in play. Yeah, that means right? they're dealing three damage a
1: turn to you. That's pretty significant, actually.
0: And if you, but that point, my point is, is if you take a flipped Delver out of that equation, then the math becomes incredibly in your favor. Like one Pyromancer yeah. plus three or four Just tokens one. goes from five damage to one. What about? And that's if you have no blockers. What about other so. matchups?
1: Is this good again? This is probably decent against Hate Bears, um, which isn't a, a you know really popular. What does this thing do in the Workshop Mirror? Practically speaking.
0: Practically speaking, it it could turn a very grindy game into one where you have several more turns. The kind of game where you've traded resources and they're trying to beat you with Mishra's Factory. Yeah. This this doubles the amount of time you have against the, any number of Mishra's factories within reason.
1: Yeah, I think the thing that's really frustrating about this card is that it it, it only prevents damage to you, not period. If, this True. thing was, doesn't help your creatures. Yeah, right, doesn't yeah. help your creatures.
0: Yeah. It's pretty good against Hangerback Walker. What <laughs> is wrong with you? Realistically, though, if you're getting hit in the workshop beer, it usually comes in one of two ways. It's coming in big chunks that you can't stop, a la lodestones and such, in, in the the three to seven range. Probably the five to seven range. Or it's late game chipping away with a factory. This is only good in one of those scenarios and, and only a little bit. It's probably not worth the slot post sideboard against shops. That's such an a resource heavy matchup that if you have the luxury of playing a five mana spell or cheating one into play, it has to be a lot more impactful than this. You would never activate this if you're activating Forge Master, you're never gonna choose this in a workshop yeah. matchup, and you're probably gonna be disappointed to pull it off the top in almost every scenario, so I think it doesn't apply to the Workshop Mirror. It's good in grindier games. <laughs> again, it's it would keep you alive against landstill, for example, yeah. for a significantly longer amount of time. But that matchup, again, so time attrition-based. That you're gonna yeah. be, right, your landstill opponent's going to be like, oh, Orbs of Warding, you got yeah. it. <laughs> I guess I'll hold this Force of Will and this Mana Drain for your next card. Yeah. (laughs) So, it's not that great. I I
1: think this card is vintage playable. I'll say that. But I don't anticipate... Mm -hmm. I don't know. How how many Witchbane Orbs seem to play in our last period?
0: Let me find the TC deck's stats on that. No, it goes like about 15. I'm going
1: non-zero on this then. Okay. I'm going to say two or three. Somewhere in that range.
0: I'll put you down for three. I think... Given the amount of Witchbane orb that sees play, it seems pretty foolish to think that someone's not going to yeah. switch one or more of yeah. their Witchbane orbs. Someone's going to look at this against Young Pyromancer alone and say that's worth it. And so I agree with your conclusion. Um, I'm starting to wonder if three might not be too low, just given that simple analysis. If it would only take a quarter of the Witchbane orbs out there to be switched for this to go immediately up to the four, five, six kind of range, take you over. Yeah, I'll take the over. I'll say four.
1: Okay. What a marathon review session. Holy smokes!
0: No kidding. I really am surprised by the complexity, both both in print and strategic, of this set as well, a whole. This
1: card exemplifies what I described before as the way to design for the format, right? A card that is situationally better and situationally worse than a card that sees play. Yep.
0: Yeah, I agree completely. They're, I mean, they have created... In doing so and making such complex cards, they've created a lot of options for deck construction and specific applicability. And this might be, I'd have to go back and analyze it, but this might be one of the higher predictions of ours in the last several sets and just in terms of number of cards that might see play. We've been in this holding pattern of predicting one to three cards per set, basically, with a couple of those being pretty out there speculations. (laughs) Uh, not, not unreasonable, but just didn't pan out speculations. And we've predicted Artificer's Intuition, Days Undoing. Not uh, Intuition, Artificer's Epiphany, excuse me. Days Undoing. Harbinger of the Tides, Liliana, Hangerback Walker, and Orbs of Warding is six cards. And we were pretty close to on the fence on a couple more, like the Aether Grid and the Mana Gorger Hydra. So that's impressive. If even half of those cards actually see play, then this set will be up there in terms of vintage playables for the last couple of years. Sighting. Yeah. And I fully predict that you and I will be wrong on at least one of these. Yeah. One of these zeros, I mean, like the Aether Grid.
1: Yeah. Our listeners should have uh, a big dose of, <laughs> of skepticism or whatever about our predictions. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, the more complex the cards are, the harder they are to evaluate, both individually and as they relate to the metagame. Our discussion on Hangerback Walker, I think, exemplifies that. Orbs of Warding, clearly to your point. And it's the flip planeswalkers, Liliana and Jace. There's so much complexity there that it's really hard to predict. And also, any kind of future printing could break many of our predictions here wide open. Right. So we'll see. Well, we definitely want to hear from you, our audience. What do you think the best card for Magic Origins will be in Vintage? And feel free to use your own definition of best. Until then, thank you for listening to episode 45 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays.
2: We game. <laughs> <laughs>